What is up, wrestling fans, and welcome to the second edition of 2001 Wrestling Odyssey. Uh, we're hopping back into the DeLorean again to travel back to February of 2001, and joining me on this journey back in time is Robert DeFelice. I'm Robert DeFelice, and after this episode, you will never be able to look at leaves the same way again. I'm trying to get the reference for that, but I've done all the research for this, and I can't get the reference. Uh, you will when you start reading that Vince McMahon interview. Ah, yeah. Okay, I, I see where you're coming from now. Alright, so it's essentially what we're going to be doing here, if you didn't watch the first episode, and if you haven't watched the first episode, go back and watch it, is just travelling back, looking back at the wrestling landscape back in 2001, the year that the wrestling war between WWE or WWF at the time, WCW and ECW came to an end with WWF standing triumphant. And a very good juxtaposition to nowadays, where we're entering an age where it feels like the wrestling world is becoming more open again after decades of WWE dominance. Uh, February 2001, it just as a bit of a recap back from January. At this point in time, it was believed that like WCW was perhaps being saved or being bought out by Eric Bischoff. WWF was steaming along very well successfully on their new home on Spike TV. And ECW was all but dead. Uh, which is, it's it's a it's pretty uh, depressing state of mind to be in at the moment, but there's still some embers of hope with some of the other wrestling promotions. Were you missing ECW this month? Uh... Well, considering the fact I wasn't watching at the time, it's hard to really miss them. But there is a bit of ECW news, but unfortunately it's a little bit incremental this time. But we will break down all the news, special events. Uh, if you stick around until the end, the three events that we're covering this month are uh, Women's of Wrestling, Women of Wrestling Unleashed. I keep saying women's when I'm saying it, but it's Women of Wrestling Unleashed, which was a pay-per-view of women of wrestling which we will cover in great detail because it deserves that attention uh wcw super brawl revenge the penultimate pay-per-view of wcw and no way out 2001 one of the greatest the pay-per-views in wwe's history so ready to travel back in time to check out the news in 2001 oh yes i am very much excited for these reheated tags ah the reheated tags well, let's kick it off then with, well, let's start in the WWF, because I think they were given a little bit less attention last month because the big news was all about WCW and who was in control. But we'll start with WWF, and in particular, not really the WWF, but the XFL. Oh boy. When I first thought of the idea of, like, 2001, I couldn't have imagined that we were in a time where the XFL is about to make its return in 2020. Yeah, uh, and... You mentioned that you were a fan of American football. Are you excited for the XFL? Uh, I'm excited to, to see if they learned any lessons from it, because as we're about to cover, there's plenty of lessons to be learned from it. But I have to ask you, do you have any memories of actually watching the XFL when it was on? I have a pretty vivid memory of the first game and of watching long enough for The Rock to say... You know, if you smell what the XFL is cooking. And then, like, I don't remember much after that. Well, let's uh, start from the beginning then, because the XFL was the brainchild of 
Vincent Met. Essentially, just to a quick rundown here, we're just going to cover the entirety of the XFL in this part. Obviously, it starts in February and it ends in uh, April or May time. But we're going to cover it all into one thing so we don't have to keep going back to it unless there was something that spectacular that happened in March and the ending with the million dollar game in... Uh, when was the million dollar game? I'll check out my notes. Just in, yeah, on April 21st. That was the end of it. But we're just going to cover the whole thing just to get it over and done with in one hit. So brainchild of Vincent Mann, who teamed up with NBC and Dick Ebersole. I have quite a long relationship with McMahon and Dick Ebersole. Vince has always claimed to have him being like a very close friend of uh, like Dick Ebersole, stretching back to the time where they used to do um, Saturday night main events in NBC. But... Well, you know, you know, Dick Ebersole, this certainly wasn't the Saturday night's main event venture that they thought it would be. This was not good at all. And I have to say, I'm not following it too closely, but I know... Uh, Charlie Ebersole's AAF currently is not doing too hot either. No, uh, yeah, that's uh, from all the news I've checked so far. It's gone. It's actually quite followed the trajectory of what the XFL was, which was a reasonably hot start and then like a very, very rapid decline. But we'll start from the beginning with the teams that were competing in the XFL. Eight teams, two conferences, just weeks of television. Uh, teams were the New York slash New Jersey Hitmen. I hate that so much. Uh, it doesn't get much better. The uh, Las Vegas Outlaws. The Chicago. That's not too bad. The Chicago Enforcers. The, okay. Orla- the Orlando Rage. Ooh, edgy. The Los Angeles Extreme, with just spelt with an X at the start of it because crazy. And because LAX, the airport. Exactly. Uh, the Memphis Maniacs, which is spelled with an X at the end of it as well. Because 2001. Yeah. The Everything Fran- is X. The San Francisco Demons. And the Birmingham Thunderbolts. But their original name was meant to be the Birmingham Blast. But they decided to uh, nix that name because of the uh, like connotations it dr- derived from the 16th uh, street Baptist church bombing or terrorist attack that took place like a few years pre- prior to that. So, well, just listening to those names, it's so cringy and like, oh, we're trying to be edgy here. But I do like the name the Chicago Enforcers. I don't know. That sounds, you know, it's not too like, look at me. I'm trying to be edgy mom. And I don't know. It sounds like a cool team name. So essentially, like I was saying, it got off to an incredibly hot start. The first game, which was a 19-0 victory for the Las Vegas Outlaws over the New Jersey uh, Hitmen, drew a 9.49 rating. Good lord. Which is the equivalent of about 14 to 15 million viewers. Wow. Yep. It was, yeah, I mean, after that thing, that was about, I think... Based on what they were guessing, it was about double the viewing figures they were expecting. But what, what do you assume, like, going that that's the number for the like initial rating, what do you think the rating was for the second week of shows? 3.4. It's slightly better than that. It was a 
but still the audience slashed in half after one week. I think that, you know, people wanted to see what they could provide, but, you know, that initial scramble, I think, turned people off. And when you realize that a lot of it was very, this is the WWF's football, kind of, because you had Vince McMahon and The Rock doing things, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think probably a, um, like a breakdown of the rules and regulations that were happening in the XFL are probably a good way to show how people were turned off quite quickly. You mentioned, obviously, the opening scramble. So instead of a kickoff, like a coin toss and a kickoff, two players from one team, one from one of the teams each, would run after the ball, essentially, and the first person to pick it up would like gain possession for the team. And this caused the first actual major injury in one of the first matches. Uh, I believe it was, um, I can't remember the name of the uh, player himself, that's essentially running off the ball, separated his shoulder and was uh, out of the, uh, out of the rest of the entire season because of it. In- well, in- it's extreme, Callum. It's- in- injuries were just the like thing of the day for the XFL. Because essentially, both of the opening scramble, the fact that you're allowed to essentially tackle anybody who could get possession of the ball without any penalties. Because as far as I understand, my my knowledge of the NFL rules isn't as strong as maybe it should be. But essentially, there's a lot of more tighter regulations with roughing certain players, like roughing the quarterback, roughing the... Uh, receivers when they get the ball. In the XFL, that was pretty much cut and dry. You could basically just take anyone out at any point in time. And I guess it was very like WWE Battle Royal style way of doing things. Yeah, and I think that was the whole thing. It was football with attitude, you know? Uh, He hate me because he ate me, kind of. Oh yeah, that that was another regulation in the fact that you were allowed to put nicknames on your... uh, on your jerseys rather than your actual name, where the famous uh, Rod Smart, He Hate Me, came about. So there are a lot uh, of people that had these... What is he doing these days? Did he ever, like, get to the NFL? What did what ended up becoming of He Hate Me? I don't believe he ever made it to the NFL. I mean, I haven't... I didn't dig into his history that much, but the basis was that most of these people either weren't in the NFL or had been in the NFL like a few years prior and had been cuts or there were some people that were wrestling basically because this was happening during the NFL off season. They were rest. They were both doing this and would go back to the NFL afterwards. Like mainly like reserve players or players that were lower down the pecking order. So you saw a very lower standard of football as well, which we'll also get into. Huh. Uh, Obviously, other rules, um, they made the playing on grass fields completely mandatory. So you couldn't play on AstroTurf or, like, synthetic grass, which forced them to skip over, like, major footballing markets like Houston and Philadelphia to create franchises because they didn't have any all-grass fields. Any reason that they thought this would be better? I was trying to, like find out there doesn't seem to be any other rules along the well doesn't be any real reason for it other than the fact that they thought it would cause more injuries 
which seems ridiculous because <laughs> in fact having more injuries actually did happen. But uh, you didn't have a um, a point after touchdown or PAT kicks. You instead you had a a two yard offensive to to score an extra point. Um, overtime was was more of the um was more along the lines of the college football style. So essentially, you would start on your opponent's twenty yard line, and you would drive. You would have four uh like drives to try and get as close to the end zone as possible. And you would keep doing that until somebody scored, and if the other team didn't score, then they won. Pretty much now, pretty straightforward. I really wonder what made how much Vince McMahon had to say about these kinds of rules and what made him go with all of these rules. Uh I think it was just any attempt that, I mean there were certain things where they, they cut down the time for uh essentially huddles or like the breaks of play. It was all with really the endeavour of trying to make football more exciting. And because he thought that the NFL would, basically the rhetoric that they were putting across is that NFL were taking football away from the fans and they were giving football back to the fans. No, no, you got to do it the way Vince did it. NFL is the no fun league. This is the extra fun league. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, it was fun, but for entirely embarrassing reasons. Because, as as mentioned, the quality of football just wasn't there. Attendances dropped immediately. Not just like for television viewership, but just attendances at actual events as well. In certain cases, like these huge stadiums, and some of them were like pretty big. Like they could fit a f- like tens of thousands of people were attracting, like shy of a thousand people at a time just because uh, it, it it was it wasn't entertaining like it was just seeing a bunch of amateur players essentially yeah let's talk about the cheerleaders uh the cheerleaders see i mean this is 2001 this is a vincent man owned product so the cheerleaders essentially wore well <laughs> as, as as little as they could possibly get away with on nbc ah uh. Good lord. It was um, like, um, I can't remember what the movie is, but you know, I think there was like this cheerleader dance scene where they're essentially just Coyote strippers. Ugly. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Just essentially just strippers and stuff like that cavorting on screen. Not exactly have any rhythm or real yeah. dancing ability, but they looked hot and were wearing very, like, little clothing. So it worked for them. Well, by God, pal. That's, that's what people want. It's. And they tried to give them gimmicks too, like like bad porn gimmicks, like secretary and teacher, and you know what the fuck. Well, they one of the um, most infamous skits from the XFL was they Vincent Man had this thing where he said that he was going to give us an exclusive peek into one of the uh, cheerleaders' locker rooms, and he was uh, revving up this uh, camera operator to go into the. Uh, like to go into the locker room and as the cameraman is rushing in he hits his head on the door and essentially falls over and starts fantasizing about what it's like in there and i think that features a cameo from rodney dangerfield as well yeah this was like towards the end of the xfl where they were desperate to anything to get ratings yeah that's when they went full on wwf 
like full on. This is Vince McMahon. Have fun with it. Ha ha. Um, what about Stephanie being a, like a correspondent? And because people are all watching the WWF because it's 2001, they're all just like slut, slut, slut. <gasps> well, more than like like Stephanie McMahon transporting a player's wife who was in like apparently in labor to hospital by a helicopter. It was another like ridiculous skit they did as well. Why? And, because I asked because, you. Because this is. Like, because Vince McMahon thought that everybody was watching WWF, and while there was a certain number, and obviously the ratings were bigger than they'd ever been, and I'm sure many football fans were watching WWF, it doesn't mean all people who watch football watch WWF, and not all of them are that interested or know who these characters are, or only have a vague interest in those characters and actually want to just watch the football. But then you have... I mean, it was so bad that by just eight days into the initial ratings, there was, like, emergency meetings being held about how, like, how terrible the ratings were sinking. I mean, you you had in- instances like uh, The Rock appearing on Jay Leno, completely forgetting uh, the team's names. So <laughs> he comes onto the, the, like, Tonight Show and says, oh, yeah, the Birmingham Lightning Bolts or whatever, or stuff like that. It's- he he, yeah. the Rock is obviously he has a, a, a college footballing background, but he obviously didn't have much care for the act, this actual league beyond the fact that he was being paid to promote it. Uh, uh, I really hope that the XFL of twenty twenty stays completely away from the WWE and just plays football, changes the game of football, and that's it. To, just to give an indication of how bad the XFL gone, but the XFL broadcast on the 24th of February edition, so that's essentially three weeks after the start, uh, drew a 2.61 rating. So that's down in the course of three weeks from 9.49 to 2.61. This is Jeez. like this is like WCW Nitro ratings at this point. <laughs> like that's how bad it's getting at this at this stage. Uh, you also have to mention the commentators. So commentary for the XFL was done by a mix of uh, like footballing announcers that weren't doing stuff at the time for the actual NFL and WWF announcers. So we had commentators for XFL games, including Jim Ross, uh, Jonathan Coachman, Jesse the Body Ventura. Awesome. Jerry Lawler, who... We should also add the caveat, never watched football and was not a football fan in the slightest, but was pressured into doing it because obviously he's WWF announcer. And a a guy who was actually primarily doing football, but would later end up in WWE commentary, Mike Adamley. Huh. Now, I think that's actually, that's not a bad list of guys. You know, it is JR loves football. But JR loves football. You could have made that work. Um, yeah, King was probably just there because he's the king in Memphis. Same thing with, you know, Jesse the Body. But I definitely feel like good intentions were there. I think there's good intentions, but it's very it's very different to be a fan of football to being good at commentary for it. So essentially we had all of the stuff going horribly wrong, so... Ratings dropped by March the 31st to 1.5, which which essentially became 
at that point in time, the lowest rated show that ever appeared on NBC. At least by like like original programming. So it set new records for terribleness on that broadcast. Uh they've got a long long way to go in this reboot, man. I'm afraid for them. Well, it's just it's it's just so interesting that's how such a colossal failure would just like he'd want to try this again. I mean, I know Vincent Mann, as we'll come to discuss during his uh, Playboy interview, he hates failure. But you can't how can you really see it being a positive? Like the only way it could be a positive is if they completely scrap the idea of all of this because it seemed like with the XFL it was all flash and no substance. Like you, you had the glitz and the glamour and the fireworks and the sexy cheerleaders and the the little skits that were going around side and then you actually just got down to the football and it completely sucked. Well, I really hope that this time around the football's good and everything else can take a back seat because at the end of the day they are a football company. So it all built up to the the million dollar game, which was originally called that big game at the end. That literally that was what it was titled in the like newspaper recordings in the like original weeks of it, and they eventually turned it into the million dollar game, where the Los Angeles Extreme defeated the San Francisco Demons. I actually watched this game in kind of preparation for it and. Like, if these were the two best teams in this competition, then no wonder people thought this was a completely amateur league. The San Francisco Uh, Demons in particular were absolutely hopeless. I think the quarterback threw about three or four picks. Uh, They obviously only got one touchdown, and that was in the final quarter. It was 38-0 at one point. Um. Mark your calendars, mark out moment faithful. Tony and I already agreed that come next year, we will be watching the million dollar game and doing a fan ounce table. Oh, over God. I mean, that, I mean, it'll be hilarious, but like, you'll just be watching going, what, what is going on? Like, like, it barely resembles football, let alone like anything that's supposed to be a championship game. Uh, just like some, like, historical reference, the XFL uh, ranked number three on TV Guide's list of uh, worst TV shows of all time Oof. in July 2002, as well as uh, number two on ESPN's list of biggest flops in sports. Who do you think's number one biggest flop in sport? Um, Michael Jordan trying to play baseball. Oh, that should have... That's a really good one. I, I didn't actually check. I'm sh- that must be somewhere in the top ten. But it was actually... um. Oh, I'm trying to remember. I have. I wish I'd known it down. But it was the guy who was drafted second after Peyton Manning in the NFL draft. I think his name was Ryan Leaf. Something Ryan Leaf, like. he said. Yes, I think so. Uh yes. Yes. Yeah, so, so this was a guy who was supposed to be like him and Peyton Manning were supposed to be pretty much co- like complete similar people in the sense of. They were number one, number two college quarterbacks. And people thought, well, one team's going to get like one A quarterback and the other one's going to get one B. 
and they're both going to essentially battle each other for dominance over the course of however many years. And obviously Peyton Manning became one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, and Ryan Leaf was out of the league within four years. So that's the way things go, I guess, sometimes. Yeah. But yeah, the XFL, a complete unmitigated disaster for both WWF and NBC. Uh, both sides lost a reported $35 million each. $35 million. Um, WWF threw around a lot of money at the time because aren't they also in the middle of WWF The World or New York? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, I think that was instituted around 90000 but yeah, they're losing money on that as well. They're also losing money on their music recordings they're doing as well. Essentially, anything outside of the wrestling is losing the money. They never got that picture, did they? Vince never wanted to have that picture because he wanted to be in charge of like all entertainment, not just wrestling. I've always had this idea in mind, and maybe I'm like overstepping boundaries by suggesting it, but that Vince was always ashamed to be in professional wrestling. I, I don't think you're overstepping your boundaries. I think that's why he created the term sports entertainment, because it's not professional wrestling. It's this wacky brand of entertainment. And it's weird because he he did really well at this wacky brand of entertainment, but he always wanted more. And I think every time he overstepped that limit, he failed. Now he says he's not afraid of failing. He winds up better for it, but you would think that you'd get the picture. Hey, embrace your wrestling. Stick to your wrestling, because that's what you're good at. I don't want to come across like as entirely negative on the XFL. So just to round off with like a couple of positives, they were the first uh, football league to really like popularize. I wouldn't say popularize, but really make total use of the uh, the uh, Skycam, which essentially like now is a prominent feature in the NFL entirely. But they that's all... Vince McMahon and WF people being you know, WWF guys and saying, what's the best angle? What's the best production? That's why that works. And then they also pop, well, enforce more of the use of, like, ringside like ringside interviewers. Ringside. Like, like uh, field, field side. Yeah, on-field interviewers and uh, cameramen. And they also would, like, they would regularly interview coaches and players during the games going on. And that this often really annoyed the football coaches because these were serious football coaches and they didn't want to be really involved in the like the melodrama that was surrounding them more often than not. But yeah, so that's basically just a roundup of the XFL and like the hideous, like awful uh well, just waste of money they ended up being. So, Callum, we can count on you to be Smart Guy Moments resident XFL cover guy next year? Uh, um, I mean, I'll, I'll try and watch it. Maybe I'll just be like the millions of other people and just watch the first week and then turn it off immediately afterwards. Um, I, know, I know we're focused on 2001, but do you think that if the XFL had had the streaming platform that we have now, that the XFL would have survived? No. Just, I mean, it would have survived, but it wouldn't have gotten any better, and it wouldn't have 
attracted any serious amount of viewership. It would just be just something that you might want to click on every now and again. Eventually, it would have died because you wouldn't be able to pay the players with the sort of services they would end up on. That's fair. I mean, considering the fact they lost like $35 million and they were on a primetime network. I imagine how much they would have lost if they were on just like, uh, what what was the like, impact on the Pursuit channel? Just, yeah. Just chuck them on there. Imagine how much they're losing at that point. But let's move on to actual WWF news. So at this point in time, I think the big thing that was going on was, well, the big thing happens towards the end of the month, which is uh, the departure of Jerry, the King Lawler, and the Cat from WWF. Yep. So, now. Oh, well, I, I want to ask you this question first of all, because I only actually ch- heard this uh, earlier today on on like another podcast that I listened to. So I was quite, it's quite serendipitous that it came up here. Uh, how do you think the cat was when she first met Jerry Lawler? 20. Uh, you're one year out, 19. Damn it, I was so afraid to go to teenage years, but damn it, Jerry. Yeah, and well, apparently Jerry writes in his autobiography about this, that he uh, immediately considered having an affair on his wife at the time with the cat. Stacey Carter, obviously uh, that was her real name. Uh, but obviously, currently up... married to uh, Kizarni. No, previously married to Kizarni. Divorced. Not... Really? Yes. Okay. Only a few years in. I believe uh, married in 2010, divorced 2013, 2014, around about that time. Okay. Um... Uh, yeah, but essentially they're together in w- WWF. Uh, at this point in time, the cat is in storyline as we'll cover in nowhere 2001 with bright sensor where she wants to essentially be nude on tv which she had done before well at least topless on t- on a uh, pay-per-view was it armageddon when they did the freaking fatal four-way pool match yeah armageddon 1999 the cats wins the women's championship and celebrates by taking her bra off ah uh. <laughs> oh women's wrestling's come a long way yeah, since yeah. <laughs> thank god that's the For same the title, like, like that's, that's the same championship that, like, like that's the ch- title that Ronda Rousey is holding now. Yeah, and you know it was fought in a Fatal Four Way Pool match. Yep. Uh, so essentially, there's no real reason. I mean, there are obviously reasons, but there's no standout reason why the cat was let go. Essentially, the discussion was that they decided they were going to end the entire right to censor angle like the act itself so they didn't need the cat around and basically people thought that the cat had a, a pretty big attitude problem behind the scenes and to be fair why wouldn't she like she was in her early 20s at this point in time she'd already won the women's championship she was a huge deal because essentially just because of the way she looked she had she was married to jerry lawler who was in a pretty prominent position and this is all, like, all things that lead up to somebody that doesn't really have a lot of respect or care for the wrestling industry and is just there to show off her body and make a lot of money. So, like Sable? Oh, yeah, absolutely like Sable. And, well, Sable was more popular than the cat, which is why they probably would have 
worked a lot harder to keep Holder stable than the cat ended up being. So the cat is end up releasing like the last few days of February, and Jerry Lawler immediately follows her out the door. So which we'll talk about later with the No Way Out match, right? Yeah, so No Way Out 2001 ends up being Jerry Lawler's last pay-per-view until December of 2001. So he's gone for that entire time. And we might actually see some more Jerry Lawler because to fill the gap between his being in, like outside of WWF, he does commentate for a number of other smaller wrestling promotions. Including World Wrestling All-Stars, which I hope we cover at least one of their pay-per-views. Oh, yeah, we've got to see um, like Rodman Down Under or something on those lines. I think, was that the... <laughs> Was that the one, or was that um, yeah? Was that another Australian promotion? I think they had a lot more like basic WCW names. Like I know one was called Revolution. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it was basically TNA before TNA. Oh yeah, well, basically everything that was attempted after WCW with WCW stars was TNA before TNA. Uh, doing other stuff. Uh, China's book which we spoke about in the, the January edition, is, like, I think it reached number two on the New York Times bestsellers, despite everyone pretty much saying it's a piece of crap and, like, really shouldn't be read. I, well, I, there is that review on Smart Girl Moment from Ross, isn't there? Yes, who basically says what I, what I just <laughs> reviewed, what encapsulated there in a few sentences. But... And it just it just shows how big WWF was in the zeitgeist at that point in time that even a a book which wasn't and obviously how big China was as well but a book which look going back in time reading just isn't if any real quality was just hitting the top of the uh, nonfiction bestseller charts. Well, you know, kudos to her. She just got announced for the WWE Hall of Fame this week alongside the rest of Degeneration X. So I'm glad she's at least being recognized. But yeah, writing, I'm sure, was not her strong suit. Uh, so other news. Another news that's like, is kind of the starting point for where we are today is that this was pre-production for the Scorpion King story. And that, that's the launching pad for The Rock becoming the biggest star in Hollywood. Who yes. Who'd have thought, like, this show... I mean, this movie, and I've seen The Scorpion King a couple of times, it's not that great. I mean, The Rock's good, because it's The Rock. But the movie itself is, you know. Yeah, I mean, The Rock, let's be honest here. For a very long time, Dwayne Johnson was not looking to be a big-time player in Hollywood. It was looking to be quite a flop and the scorpion king kind of made it seem like well maybe he can be an arnold schwarzenegger and be the next big action hero but it took him a very long time to bring that all to fruition yeah i mean it's 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 a it's a starting point at the very least uh we'll cover it probably more stuff in terms of the Scorpion King because The Rock ends up going to film it after WrestleMania time, so we'll probably cover that side of things. Uh, Another news for uh, the world of wrestling, Uh, WWF hired a number of uh, talents from ECW, uh, namely Just Incredible, Tajiri, Rhino, and Jerry Lynn. First of all, great group of guys. 
they actually used the bulk of them effectively at first. You know, Jerry Lynn had a subpar light heavyweight title run, but I can't think of anybody who didn't have a subpar run with that title. Mark Henry. Uh, well, yeah, but he's uh, <laughs> he's not a light heavyweight at all. Uh, you just asked for somebody. I just named it, so... That's just... um, X-Pac got to lead a faction in the X-Factor with uh, Just Incredible. And Tajiri probably ended up the better of all of them with his fantastic skits with William Regal. Uh, uh, Tajiri, uh, I think, was the one with the most amount of talent and was also the one that, at least on my side of things, when to start watching wrestling from 2002, by that point in time, Justin Incredible's done. Jerry Lynn's pretty much done. Rhino's obviously good, but the one that captivated me the most was Tajiri. Rhino, I think, had a lot more potential, but that ECW and that extreme stuff kind of hindered him. So, but they're, at the time, they looked like four pretty good signings. Yeah. Uh, and the signings could also be made off the back of WWE's record product profits. So, essentially, uh, for the fiscal year, which started on May the 1st, 2000, the amount of profits they made for that year was approximately $36 million. To put that amount of money into perspective, if you take like all of WWF's history at the time, like including the rock and wrestling era, the rise of Stone Cold Steve Austin in 98, 99, uh, WWF had never profited, like received profits of over six million dollars, and oh. and this year, well, this fiscal year, they brought in thirty six million, like six times that amount. Good for them, man. It really speaks to how much people were buying the product at the time. Oh, two thousand is just. I mean, obviously we're talking about two thousand one, but two thousand is just the biggest year. It, it, it's pretty incredible considering the fact that Austin is missing for the vast majority of that year. Just because yeah. the strength of The Rock as the top babyface and people like Triple H and Kurt Angle being perfect foils for him. Good, good for WWF, man. I really, I would love to see numbers like that daunting again. I know we we see a lot of big numbers now, but it's just because the value of the dollar is different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you had a lot of this was built off obviously high attendance as well. So I, ch- I checked the attendance figures. So average attendance for WWF for this year was around about thirteen thousand. So each show was getting about well, obviously some shows getting more, some shows getting less, but on average they were getting thirteen thousand in seats. Compare that to um, like the Q3 2018 attendance figures. They're now currently at four thousand five hundred. Hmm. A very significant fall, you might say. Uh, and they were also, at that point in time, they were selling out 62% of their house shows. If you compare it to WCW at the time, WCW at the time was averaging attendances of 2,342. Okay. And they sold out 0% of their house shows in the year. I, I was going to ask, when was the last WCW house show? Oh, I'm pretty sure they were still doing live events 
very close up to their end because they were touring like Australia and the UK and they're planning to tour the UK as well. I would say they did like actual television recordings while they were there as well. And they were very, very well attended. But they didn't make any money off those shows because uh, in typical WCW style, they essentially uh, agreed a deal which was monetarily uh, negative in their sense where they would sell out they would sell out these big shows and they would get really high attendance for it. But they would also pay back the arenas for any seats that were unsold. And obviously, because they had to put television equipment for certain recordings, they had to take up certain seats anyway. But those seats counted into the equation. So essentially, they were paying them back for seats that were being taken up by their television equipment. Because they're fucking idiots, and they had absolutely no idea how to run a company. (laughs) Again, I AEW has so much to avoid when it comes to learning from the mistakes of WCW. Oh, they have to absolutely learn from those mistakes. Uh, Let's go into an area where, like, you and I in particular are more familiar, less so Tony, into video games. So, at this point in time, SmackDown 2 had become, like... At, at that point in time, the best-selling title for the PlayStation consoles. Do you remember playing well, SmackDown 2? Uh, I remember playing SmackDown 2 every day for about a year straight. I was, have very fond memories of SmackDown 2. It was a pretty... I mean, the um, like the season mode and stuff like that were... Mm-hmm. You kind of hope that something more along those lines would happen in career mode nowadays because it's it was pretty straightforward you just and pick it, the guy in and... endless replayability here i'm pretty yeah almost yeah you could just go over and over and over again like careers could last years and years at a time and had pretty it had a pretty big roster as well actually i think the smackdown 2 had a smaller roster than the first one which was a bit ridiculous but well no because the first one didn't have any actual char- uh, unlockable characters. It had, like, created parts. And you just created the characters. Yeah, so it had that, it had that functionality definitely more into it. Um, now, do you remember playing more SmackDown 2 or No Mercy growing up? I, I, I mean, I was only a PlayStation kid. So I only okay. ever played the SmackDown games, so I never played No Mercy. But obviously, speaking of No Mercy, that was that sold at this point in time seven hundred fifty thousand units worldwide in its first two months of being published. Yeah, because it was one of the best games of all time. It was completely one of the better wrestling games of all time. Oh yeah, basically you just look at any list of like wrestling games and you almost invariably see no mercy at the top of it so i would have liked to have played it but i just wasn't an n64 guy at the time i really hope that one day we can get the games today with the graphics that we have now but with the simplicity and the functionality of games like smackdown 2 uh we have other stuff going on uh so brock lesnar Obviously a big talking point in 2019. Uh, he won his first ever tag, well, like wrestling championships in this month. He won the OVW Tag Team Championships with Shelton Benjamin. Interesting. 
So they were the, uh, I believe they were the Minnesota Wrecking Crew. Was their nope, Min- Minnesota Stretching Crew. Stretching Crew, God. Because they, they were, they were they shooters. Were stretch, yeah. yeah, they yeah. were shooters. How good is that, huh? Like, I, I wish that Brock Lesnar, we would have seen more of that, like, wide-eyed, young, I-want-to-be-a-pro-wrestler version of Brock. Uh, I mean, he was smarter than that, I guess is probably the, the, he sure uh, was. I mean, the bigger deal with that. N- no doubt about it. He knew what he was worth, and he played it to the absolute absolute limits he could. Which is fair play on him. Um, but also, this month also saw the signing of a future, like, true WWE legend. Rob, what are your memories of Heidenreich? Ah, uh, I have two very, very vivid memories. First was on the Raw roster, where he was doing a thing where he had a friend named Lil Johnny. And then raping Michael Cole. Just raping Michael Cole is what I will always know Heidenreich for. Uh, we, I mean, to be fair, we didn't see the bottom half. Okay, but, like, it was so implied that this dude was raping Michael Cole. And that is something I recall watching very much so. And... As Vince Man will tell you. Uh, WWE don't do rape storylines, even though they've oh. done plenty of rape storylines. Oh, oh no, never. They've never done a rape storyline. No, they've um, done necrophilia storylines, but no rape storylines. But Heidenreich, in a, in a real sense, is also one of those weird guys who was pushed to the moon. He was a Paul Heyman guy, in a sense, and feuded with The Undertaker, and then disgraced the good name of the Legion of Doom. And then went away. I kind of view him as one of, like one of these lost Undertaker giant monsters to slay, like these freaky gimmicks. Before Undertaker the, started wrestling good people and having good matches. I think the last person who gets that distinction might have already been signed by the company in two thousand one, Mister uh, Luther Rance. Oh no, definitely the last person that Undertaker faced in that regard was Great Carly. Yeah, but I feel like Kali was he ended up sticking around when you look at Heidenreich and, and Luther Reigns it's really just like wow they brought you in to feud with the Undertaker and then you fucked uh, up yeah the monster of the month thing yeah yeah I, I, I can I can understand that so that's kind of like the big things that were going on in WWF at the time so we move on to WCW which is still kind of in fully along the lines of believing that the company is going to be purchased by Fusion Media and Eric Bischoff still. But it's becoming a little more... T- obviously, we talked about in January that they already issued a press release suggesting that they had purchased WCW. But there's still a lot of sticking points going on, mainly the price. Because essentially somebody from Fusion Media or people representing Fusion Media decided to actually check into WCW's money situation and realised it was burning money quicker than anybody could have possibly imagined now i don't understand what what ended up happening here where they said okay we'll give you the rings and like the mats and the logos but we won't give you any of the media library or the television like they their goal 
almost selfishly was to fuck WCW. Like, they did not want to see this thing succeed, whether or not it was on Turner Broadcasting or not. I mean, I I don't I don't think there was, like, a huge, like, situation in terms of, like, they wanted it to be successful as long as it was on their shows. So, and they and they had no inclination of wanting to get rid of WCW from programming because, essentially, even though it wasn't doing the ratings that it previously was, it was still higher ratings than most cable shows at the time. But I think it's more along the lines of, as we'll get onto in the March edition, there were just certain people at the top end of the executives that didn't want wrestling on their programming. It wasn't the case of like not wanting WCW, it just wasn't wanting to be associated with professional wrestling in general. That's one of those things that never made sense to me. Like There are people to this day, no matter how over WWE is, that don't understand it, want nothing to do with it, and will do whatever they can to crap on it. Well, there is the association with like the wrestling fan base of their... Uh, as a general assumption, below average human beings. They're human beings that watch NASCAR, that drink tons of beer, that sit around the house all day on the internet, in their parents' basement, stuff along those lines. You know the like the typical bullshit they spill about wrestling fans. And to be fair... A lot of that is accurate, unfortunately. Well, yeah, it's a sense of, like, you look at what was putting on the... like, it was being put on the WWF programming... And that sort of stuff, and see what the ratings it was doing. It was kind of hard not to make that association, but there was definitely like more nuance to it. But some people just couldn't were too blinkered to that idea. Huh. But it's, it's such a damn shame because if you look, like wrestling also produces The Rock and John Cena, and they do a lot of great work with like Make a Wish. It's just. They can't get over that stigma. I think it's just because even if the company is doing good things, there's still the assumption that the fan base doesn't change. That's fair. And to be fair, they really... they don't. No, not unfortunately not. But as, as still along the lines of Bischoff was still under the assumption that he was going to be owning the company within a few months. He was still pushing forward the idea of a WCW shutdown. And essentially his plan was that over the course of several weeks or months, he would cut all of the baby faces out off of the shows, and the last big baby face left standing would be DDP. And then DDP would fight for the championship, and if he lost, he would be out of the company. And this would essentially mark the return of all the baby faces in one big hit, building towards the Big Bang event, which we spoke about in the previous edition. But essentially, the people behind the TV of WCW didn't want that because they were already losing money on the shows they were already like in debt to a lot of advertisers and so they couldn't afford for the show to shut down for even like a few weeks so essentially they nixed that idea and that resulted in people like Booker T coming back far sooner than they should have done because they just needed to get baby faces on TV because people were getting sick of the heels dominating the entire thing huh Actually makes a lot more sense knowing the ending of Super Brawl that we would see. Oh yeah, absolutely. So essentially, this this is another discussion about how much WCW was sucking at this point in time. So I think when I was reading through the uh, 
observers just doing some research into this, showing that um, attendance at shows in 2000 dropped 51%. So from the start of 2000 to the end of 2000, attendances were essentially cut in half. And their ratings dropped from 4.47 average in 1998 to a 2.68 average in 2000. So again, kind of half. Uh, pay-per-view buy ranks went from a 0.93 average in 1998, which, to put into perspective, because I know sometimes with the percentage points, you don't really know how many people that actually is. That's around about 358,000 people, like ordering pay-per-views. And in 2000, this was down to 0.17, which is 79,000. So about a fifth, maybe a quarter at best. That's, it's just sign of how how steep the descent was for this company. You know, I would I wish you watched WCW just so I could ask like when you became disconnected with it because I remember very much in my house watching all of the like I remember the '97 Slamboree very well. I remember the '97 uh, Starcade with Hogan and Sting really well as like a really young kid. And then I remember, like, the Wolfpack days. And then seemingly after that, WCW was, like, a non-factor in my house. Until one day, I was flipping through the channels and saw uh, Greed, a preview for Greed, on the uh, TV guide. I mean, that'll be definitely coming in March. But, I mean, I... I go where the assumption, and this probably is like a stupid thing to say, because I know WCW gets really bad around about the 2000s, like 1990s, when Vince Russo comes in. But I'm under the assumption that if I'm still watching Raw and SmackDown now, I probably would have watched WCW up until the end. I think that's very fair to say, because in in reality, it wasn't it wasn't far removed from all wrestling that we would see make mainstream television for the next few years. Oh, don't get me wrong. Like, the thing that I'll definitely bring up, definitely in the March or April editions of this, and I'll just bring it up now as, like, just a bit of a spoiler, but WCW would have survived and would have probably done reasonably well. It would never have gone up to the level that it previously gone, but it still would be around today if the guy, Jamie Kellner, didn't shut it down when he did. Because they were having decent enough ratings and they had enough of a history and a legacy behind them that they would still be surviving today. Like, TNA would never have happened because all the guys that were in WCW would still be in WCW. I, I fully yeah. believe it would still exist today if they hadn't have pulled the plug. Do you think that we would have inevitably seen a Starcade main event of AJ Styles' Samoa no, because I think it's even up until like the mid two thousands, they still would be putting Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair in main events of the show. <laughs> um, it would be Jeff Jarrett fair. against something. It would be Jeff that's, Jarrett against somebody. That's fair. Uh, speaking of Jeff Jarrett, he had the um, the unfortunate, well, at that point in time, the unfortunate distinction of being in the lowest rated main event in Nitro history, in a match between him and Dustin Rhodes, with Flair as the special guest referee. It scored a 1.61 rating, Ugh. which is even lower than what Raw does nowadays. So that's a, a sign of how bad things have gone. Uh, this this month saw the lowest ratings that Nitro and Thunder received in total, 
Nitro received a 2.05 rating at one, in one of these weeks. Thunder received a 1.52. Real, real question. Jeff Jarrett. <laughs> Overrated? He, uh, he shouldn't have been a world champion. Dustin Rhodes. Overrated? Dustin, Dustin Rhodes. The, the actual per, well, the Goldust person, the Goldust name. Are you speaking like specifically with Dustin Rhodes, or just like embodying his entire wrestling career, or just a Dustin Rhodes character? Well, just Dustin when he wanted to be Dustin. Oh, highly overrated. That's fair, and I think that's why you would see the lowest rating in Nitro history because these are two guys who, for all intents and purposes really were seen by many people as the next big thing but at the end of the day they were not that good not saying i don't love goldust and i think dustin in like his la- his last wwe run was phenomenal but when he was just trying to be i'm dustin rhodes i'm the second generation athlete i'm just jared you know I, i'm the chosen one second generation they never really thrived no, and I just think a lot of people didn't buy it at the time. This was this was a time where world championships were supposed to be held by just the top guys. But like this is a pre Jinder Mahal, JBL, <laughs> uh, I don't know, like certain people that you know shouldn't end up holding the championship. Bray Wyatt, stuff like that. People that just shouldn't be holding a world championship at any point in time. But nowadays, pretty much anybody can hold the title if you push them hard enough. And these were just two guys that were kind of being rammed down the throats of fans rather than who they wanted to have on top, which were probably people like Goldberg or Ric Flair still. Mm. But just a few other little bits from WCW News. Uh, at this point in time, they pretty much released all of their female talent. So, Which is fair. So they released Tigress, Paisley, Major Guns, Leia Meow and Daphne all in February. The was Tigress people... um, No, the pa- Paisley was Charmel. Ah. Tigress was a, uh, I, I can't remember her actual name, but she was um, teaming up with uh, like the filthy animals. Mm. And the only people that they had left in terms of the women, and they eventually all pretty much disappeared by the end of February, uh, was they had Miss Jones, who was the cat's valet. <laughs> okay. And then you had uh, Medasia, who was obviously Scott Steiner's valet as well. Medeja, Jesus Christ. And Stacey Keebler, who was essentially not being used at this point in time, it was being like brought on a paid per, per, per appearance basis. Was it originally Medeja or was she just Asia because they were just like knocking off China? No, because Asia already existed. There already was an Asia who was with the revolution, who was essentially ah. a blonde China. Ah. No, Medasia was just like Scott Steiner's favorite freak. That's just that's just that's how she was turned. I can't lie. I'm not lying about that. That's like, as deadpan as possible. She's I Scott love Steiner's it. Favorite freak. No, she's Scott Steiner's favorite freak. Absolutely, Scott Steiner. You know, the big bad booty daddy. Ah. So. Do you believe that this guy was pitched as a wrestler's wrestler at one point? Like I, I'm totally on board with him being world champion at this point in time. Though he's perfect for this point in time. 
Yeah, he's the best guy that they had at that point. Uh, and just one other final thing. Uh, lawsuits. So essentially WCW was trying to throw out a racial discrimination lawsuit, which was being uh, filed by 14 of their former wrestlers. The basis of this lawsuit was on Vince Russo. Uh, obviously, it's Vince Russo's fault. Uh, in an interview that he gave before, well, essentially after joining WCW, like really in the early stages of joining WCW from WWF, he said something to the extent of Americans don't want to see Japanese wrestling wrestlers win matches. They want to see Americans. And essentially, they use that as the basis of that was the reason why they weren't getting pushed on TV or they weren't getting fair treatment because they thought that the head booker at the time was racist against Japanese and Mexican wrestlers. Now, I think this would be a much bigger deal in today's day and age. But in 2000, 2001, I can't say that Vince Russo was not speaking for the majority of wrestling fans and the way that wrestling worked. I'm not saying, like, obviously we know Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero and guys like Shinsuke would go on to be great stars. But in 2000, you know, Kaz Hayashi wasn't going to win any matches. I mean, I can't say it's fair. It's still not politically correct to say, even at that point in time. But it's in the context of what wrestling was at that point in time. It seems like a statement that somebody would make. It also seems like the sort of statement that you would rightly, almost rightly get sued for. But there's, I, I don't know whether this lawsuit actually went up place. I think it ended up, like they ended up getting a payout for it. But it was kind of settled out of court. It didn't end up going too far. But that's pretty much the end for WCW. And next month we get into like, the real implosion of that company. Oh, but, that'll be too much fun. But speaking about company implosions, ECW. <laughs> so, they were still, they were still intending to run a pay-per-view on the, on the, on the 11th of March. I can't remember what the name of that one was supposed to be. I, I don't know if it was meant to be, like, a barely legal or something on those lines. But they were I still... I think it would have been, uh, if not Cyberslam, then... Um, anarchy rules. It might have been one of those ones. But essentially along the lines of they even though they hadn't run any house shows for like the entirety of February, they still thought that they could get people together for that one show. Also at this point in time, Paul Heyman had essentially been it was under the big belief that Paul Heyman had been offered a writing job in WWE. And for the meantime, it was not accepting it. And many okay. people believed that he was going to be coming in as the head booker of WWF, when obviously there's only one head booker of WWF, and that's Vincent Mann. So people thought that he was going to come in above Vincent Mann were probably a bit out off piece, really. He wasn't officially on the writing team for a while, right? He was brought on as the, uh, what, the alternative opinion guy? I mean, he was brought in as, like, the commentator when Jerry Lawler eventually left. So he was brought in for that role. Yeah, but he had been offered the backstage role of, hey, sit in on the meetings and give me the contrarian opinion. I think that was essentially what the idea was to be, just a guy that could talk back to Vince and not really care about 
what he thought, which ended up, I mean, that's the idea that probably Vince has and says, yeah, you're going to come in and you're going to be like, you're going to just talk down my opinions and suggest why it's wrong. But then, but then once you've told me why it's wrong, I'm still going to do what I'd want anyway, because I don't care what you think. <laughs> that's, essentially, that's essentially, I think, what I think Vincent Mann operates like, even at that point in time. I would love to work for him. Like, at, like there's something in me that wants that punishment of like, yeah, I'd love to give you ideas. Give him an idea. No, you're wrong. Fuck you. That sounds a little masochistic. If I don't, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> well, well, there, there's a peek into my brain. I mean, to be fair, we've had our asses kicked by like Vincent Mann and WWF for years at a time. We're probably just used to this at point, this point in time. Just be a case of him actually shouting at us rather than just like treating us like we're idiots anyway. But by, by the television. Yes. Uh, so yeah, that'll be, that's pretty much the it for ECW. They're not doing anything at this point in time. They're pretty much just like slowly dying. Uh, more of a whimper than just like, a huge bang, which you're probably going to get more with WCW. But we'll just yeah. explore a little bit on the wider wrestling world at this point in time. So All Japan hosted the uh, Stan Hansen retirement ceremony, which I hope for their sake went slightly shorter than his Hall of Fame acceptance speech. So you got you got to have an opponent. You got to have an opponent, uh, Callum. You got to have yeah. an opponent. So, I mean, I think Stan Hansen goes under the radar as like how much of a huge deal he was in Japan. Like he is, and probably still is regarded as the biggest like American superstar that ever appeared in Japan. I think that's maybe changing for this generation, but Stan Hansen is the guy when you think of a guy gene in Japan. For me, it's Hansen, Brody, Vader, and like the more modern guys. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for our generation, but we're not in that culture. And I still think that there's a, a huge swathe of Japanese fans that would see Stan Hansen come in as like a legend role and just know instantly who he is. It's like the Hulk Hogan of our generation, or people along those lines. Maybe not to yeah. that extent, but still very high up there. Well, no, maybe like the the Ric Flair and the villain in the villain sense, you know? Maybe, yeah. I mean, this show it featured a lot of top stars that hadn't appeared in All Japan for a while. You had a uh, Mil Mascaris was on the show, Barry Windham, Mike Rotunda, Kurt Hennig, Terry Funk, and Abdullah the Butcher. Who, uh, Terry Funk at the time was 56 years old and Abdullah the Butcher was 64 years old. And they wrestled in a tag team match. He just retired a few weeks ago, Abdullah. I know, it's... I mean, it's, he had it's a hell of a career. It's surreal, is what it is. And So he was over 80 when he retired. Yeah. Fucking hell. Is Dory Funk Jr. still wrestling? I couldn't answer that question. I think he he was more sensible with his retirement stuff than Terry Funk was. So I'd imagine he stopped wrestling. I mean, he's the older brother, isn't he? Yeah, but you never know. Oh, no, you never know. I mean, you're never retired in wrestling, it seems. That's kind of like the rule, unless you're injured out of it. Uh, you had other stuff going on in uh, New Japan. Uh, Antonio Noki was putting out this ludicrous claim that Mike Tyson agreed to come wrestle a match. 
Mike Tyson, who uh, obviously known familiarly in WWE as a Hall of Famer and appearing in WrestleMania 14. But apparently they wanted to bring him in in kind of like a in the same style of like the Inoki Muhammad Ali match, which got so much attention. It would just be a boxer in Mike Tyson against one of the Japanese wrestlers. And then Mike Tyson's camp essentially came out and just immediately denied it. Even though Inoki pretty much for the entirety of February was saying, yep, it's going to happen. Spoiler, it didn't happen. I, I, I don't know why there is that fascination of, you know, wrestler versus boxer. I mean, obviously MMA is very popular, but if you didn't learn from the Ali match with Inoki, it didn't work out. Even the Japanese people were booing Anoki, wanting him to get up and square up to this guy. Do you know who promoted that match? For what? Uh, Ali and Anoki? Yep. Was it... Was it Vince Sr.? No, it was it was Vince Jr. Vince McMahon. The Vince McMahon. Promoted that really? show. Yep. This was, that was actually one of the uh, shows that ended up with Vince going into bankruptcy. Huh. Vince actually went to bankruptcy for a short period of time because of that show. Well, I say primarily that show. There were a lot of obviously factors into it, but he promoted that show. He also promoted uh, Evil Knievel's attempt to jump over a gorge. You know the uh, Simpsons episode where Homer attempts to jump the gorge? Yeah. That's based off of an Evil, Evil Knievel stunt that went absolutely haywire as well. And Vince promoted that as well. I love it. <laughs> so he's, he, he doesn't mind failure. Just keep As we'll that see. Uh, also talk about uh, Kendo Suzuki, who we mentioned obviously is like one of the uprising star. He was meant to be like being pushed as like the major star for New Japan within five years' time. Where in reality, in five years' time, he would have been through WWE already released and just be wrestling like in like certain Japanese promotions. Now, He's still wrestling as well. I don't know if you knew this, Cal. Mm. But Kenzo Suzuki loves America. He loves America. He loves America. <laughs> he loves Tori Wilson as well. I, I remember that feud as well. I went to a SmackDown house show, and I have vivid rem- memories of Kenzo Suzuki because he and Rene Dupree were the tag team champions. Yes. Fighting Billy Gunn and Hardcore Holly in a no DQ match. This Wait, is why like. Why do you keep watching? Why do I keep watching? <laughs> This is like the best they could offer you at the time is Kenzo Suzuki, Rene Dupree, Billy Gunn, and Hardcore Holly. Ah, amazing. Uh, we should also talk a little bit about Women, women of Wrestling. Because obviously we'll be talking about the show a little bit later on. They're one and only pay-per-view show. Uh, essentially, they posted a $2.5 million operating loss between the months of September and November. Oh. Of 2000. This hurts. But hearing all this money just fall through the cracks hurts. So put it in perspective, like potentially some perspective, this was more than six times the amount of money that Smoky Mountain Wrestling lost in its entire lifespan. And this is for fucking women of wrestling. And like, no disrespect. They're back on TV. They're back doing their thing. And it's great. And women's wrestling is great. But, like, that's way too much money for stupid women of wrestling in 2001. I know. Well, we'll obviously get more into that and talk in 
a bit later on. But I think that's that covers like the majority of like the news aspect of this thing. That's like the reheated tags. But I think something that we missed out on into like in the January edition was talking about a bit more more about the TV that was going on at the time, some of the big storylines that were happening. So in the WWF on Raw and SmackDown, you had the um the big storyline I think besides the Triple H Steve Austin one, which we'll talk about a bit more in two, No Way Out two thousand and one review, was the Vince and Trish affair. So Trish's feud with Stephanie Vince, uh, obviously having an affair with Trish at that point in time, and it led to, and the final roar of, uh, like February. Uh, Vince turning on Trish and covering her in slop from a mop, mop bucket. And making her bark like a duck. Oh, no, 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 that's March. Did that come later? That's in March. That's the week afterwards. Oh. So we'll cover that. I'm definitely oh. covering that in detail in March because that is a sickening thing. But what do you think of the whole Vince Trish affair storyline? Really, really odd and I... I cannot wait until we talk about the Playboy interview because here's a man who made his wife pretend to be sedated as she sat in a wheelchair and watched her make out with this much younger, much more attractive woman as she's just sitting in a wheelchair. Even like Vince, not Vince, but Shane and Stephanie in Vince's documentary said this was very uncomfortable for all of us like this man has no shame no and trish was like one of the first women to have that treatment as well because it would, it would just continue with tori wilson stacy keebler candace michelle candace michelle with the um the healing thing from backlash of six oh you mean the labia the labia joyous and stuff like that yeah it's what it's one of the most bizarre segment I've ever seen Vince McMahon be a part of. And that is saying something with Vince McMahon. But you also had uh, uh, Raven's mystery ninja woman. This is the point where Raven is at the heart of the hardcore division. And he has his own mystery ninja woman to protect him during his matches and to like distract his opponents and hit them with weapons. Do you know who the mystery ninja woman was? Tori. Yes, it was Tori, who was revealed on, I think, some episode. I don't think in February, I think in March at some point she was revealed and then went off television and was never seen in WWE again. Oh, did they reveal her? I never knew that. I just thought I think, that I think Molly Holly like takes her, I think Molly Holly takes off the ski mask at some point, but they don't build off after that. But essentially, do the reveal and then Tori's career is pretty much over. And then wow. they also, you also had the infamous... Dean Malenko match with Lita as well. This was at the point where Dean Malenko was considered himself a really boring ladies' man. And he was had said sights on Lita, had had like some instances with her, and then they end up having a match on Raw where Lita defeats Dean Malenko thanks to the help of Matt Hardy. And that's when Matt Hardy kisses Lita for the first time. Like this big nah. pivotal moment. You you know what I know about Dean Malenko and that ladies' man gimmick? That theme song gets recycled for Cesaro. That James uh, Bond-esque 
theme song he had, it gets recycled and given to Cesaro. I think Cesaro pulls it off better than Dean Malenko. Yeah, I I wonder what made them go, hey, let's make Dean Malenko a ladies man. What well, you know the same you know it's the same mind that decided that Lance Storm needed to be a ladies man. Or needs to have what was it? It's supposed to be a ten inch cock or something along those lines. Oh, and oh, and the guy that thought that Steve Blackman should be teamed up with Al Snow. Essentially, seen someone. Ahead, essentially, he looks at someone who he, he feels has no charisma, and makes a joke out of them. And the joke is they have no charisma, and we're going to give them a stupid thing to do. Ah, I mean that that, that kind of makes sense. That seems like the Vince mantra of doing things. Uh. In w- over in WCW, we have the Magnificent Seven dominating things. So Magnificent Seven was a stable containing Ric Flair, Jeff Jarrett, Scott Steiner, Rick Steiner, Lex Luger, Buff Bagwell, and Road Warrior Animal. And so these were the heel, the seven heels that were completely dominating the landscape. Who and, thought Road Warrior Animal was a good idea? Uh, the people spending money in WCW that thought, hey, it's that we'll get that road warrior pop, but I I work. think like this would be a good slot for Sid. You know, like if you're gonna have a muscular guy be a you know bodyguard heel for a faction, Sid seems like that guy. Road warrior animal without Hawk just seems useless. Yeah, so essentially their job was to feud with the top babyface at the time, which as we spoke about were were dwindling down there was no goldberg no booker t for most of the month no hogan no sting all of the top baby faces the only baby faces that were really standing against them at this point in time were kevin nash ddp and ernest the cat miller and that's not really uh, the strongest let's play one of these things let's play one of these things is not like the other and no not for reasons of race like if you look at kevin nash Diamond Dallas Page, those are pretty big WCW names. And then there's Ernest the Cat Miller. I mean, somebody called my mama. That just seems like something is out of place. I thought you were going like one of these things is not like the other because DDP was the only one that could work. Ugh, I don't know why you hate Karen Nash. Like, there's lots of reasons. And they're all pretty evident. <laughs> well, also, one of only one of them felt the need to stalk the Undertaker's wife only a few months after this. I don't know. Been, like, I don't know what Kevin Nash gets up to in his spare time. We haven't seen Kevin <laughs> yeah. Miller for a while either, so they're That's all true. just stalking the Undertaker's wife at once. Yeah. Anyway, that's like a bit of a landscape of what the TV was going on at the time. So after this short break, we're going to come back with I guess the big feature of this show, which will be the Vincent Mann Playboy interview. Okay, and now we're back. Let's have a look at this Vincent Mann Playboy interview. Just, if anybody has never read this before, brace yourself and prepare to get an understanding into the twisted mind of the guy who is still in charge of the WWE today. Like, this was back when he was in his mid-50s. So, he's now 20 years older. The, like, I guess the, the head injury sustained during his 
time on screen as a main character have settled in a little bit more. I mean, how can you sum up this interview? Wow, there is far too many references to incest for me. Is how I saw this interview. Like, this gives you a really good idea of why Vince McMahon thought he was still producing a family program when it was headlined by acts such as hot lesbian action. This is the story of a guy that had an incredibly troubled childhood that hardened him to the absolute core and has essentially blinkered his entire vision of life in the sense of it gets to the point that he suffers so badly and yet becomes so successful that he cannot in his mind picture why nobody else can do the same thing. Which, when you read this story, you kind of have to sympathize with because this is some fucked up shit. Well, you almost have to sympathize. You almost have to go with the fact that you have to have this sort of upbringing to be this successful. It's like people that have like a regular childhood and a reasonable upbringing, they probably don't have the resolve in them to do this sort of thing. They don't get as hardened or... I'm, I'm going to say it pretty much like deranged as Vincent Mann seems to get in these, these like paragraphs that he like points out. I mean, this is all just an attempt to like advertise the xfl that's the main objective of these interviews he gives several other interviews at this point in time he was previously obviously a big character but previously more closed off with his media appearances and most of the time that he did appear in media appearances he was usually having to defend something the wwf had done but in this he just lets it all out to uh, to an extent that we haven't seen before or since yeah and I wonder if he's had to have people, like, rein him in. You'd, you'd, I mean, I'd hope that people weren't reining him in and this was the stuff that he came up with. Like, if he's reined in on this interview, then then I don't really want to think about all the other stuff that could potentially happen. Uh, so this was in the February 2001 Playboy magazine. Name the cover star, Rob. Um, it was a very prominent person that was very... Uh, like, very associated with Playboy at this point in time. Pamela Anderson. No. But the uh, other one. <laughs> Janet Jameson? Oh, no, not Janet Jameson. I was thinking more Anna Nicole Smith. Ah. Yeah, that's close. Yeah, so, and it featured articles on Survivor. Again, placing this well into 2001 territory. Uh, playmates picking cars that drive women wild. And 19 ways to take off her panties. Rob, name 19 ways to take <laughs> off her panties. <laughs> uh, number one, with your big toe. Number two, with your pinky toe. <laughs> uh, okay, I, think we, I was thinking, like, blindfolded, behind your back, upside down, with your Using teeth. nothing but the muscles in your glutes. I hear Vince McMahon is especially good at that one. Take them off with your mind. Like, just... just just will them off. <laughs> yeah, but, I, th- I think Vince McMahon is also pretty good at that one. <laughs> it sounds like the sort of art, like magazine that Vince McMahon would give this sort of interviewing. So, essentially, he talks about uh, this is a brilliant line that I have to just lead off with because of what what we now think of Vince McMahon in the end of two thousand 
2019. Uh, he says, and I quote, I am of the people. If I have a gift, it's the gift of understanding common, ordinary people. <laughs> ah, the sound of laughter from this sort of phrasing. <laughs> It reminds me of when Linda lost the election the second time, and he goes, Oh, I hate these people. The the bartender, the common bartender, that's the guy I relate to. He genuinely believes this. That's not like him being funny. He genuinely believes he's a common man. Go through this thing as well to have a look into the creative process behind OUF. Our writers talk with the talent, the talent submits ideas, writers submit ideas, and generally it gets filtered through me. I'm blessed with a little creativity and vision. What a humble man. Oh, what a humble man. <laughs> just a little bit of creativity and vision. Just a tiny bit of creativity and vision. <sighs> he also talks very briefly in like the opening sections about own heart's death. And I believe like the interviewer asked him something like, you've also seen wrestlers die in your ring. And he essentially answers, oh, yeah, Owen Hart. It's like, oh, yeah, that guy. It's like, he does not come across as very remorseful about the situation. Well, I think he knew where they were going, and I think he was just trying to cut them off at the pass. Yeah. Because right. they were just getting over this lawsuit. Oh, yeah, definitely. So I th he just basically says that he thinks that it was the right decision to go on with the show, and that's what Owen would have wanted, and that's kind of what you'd expect to do. Uh, Vincent, the interview, says that he suffered multiple concussions at this point in time. Woo. Considering the fact that he uh, he takes many more chair shots in the head between now and in like the mid-2000s. You wonder how many he's actually suffered in his lifetime. Oh, I'm sure in several matches alone he's probably suffered, you know, two or three. When you think about, like, you know, Austin hitting him stiff with a chair or... All the stuff that he did with Hogan. That was a bloody match. You can't yeah. just do those I, things and not get hurt. When I think of the chair shots to the head that Vincent had suffered, I always go to the Zach Gowling one from Vengeance the, 2003. The, the dropkick? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, where it just basically his head just splits wide open from the back. And it's it like, just it gushes down, dude. Yeah, I know. That, that, that is the epitome of an unplanned, like, cut. But now we get into a bit more of the juicy things of uh, Vince's childhood upbringing. So his stepfather, Leo Lupton. Uh, so I guess this phrase really sums up his relationship with him pretty well. It's unfortunate that he died before I could kill him. I would have enjoyed that. <laughs> I just Like, just zero filter here. Just like, I would have enjoyed killing him. So essentially he notes that essentially his family were beaten up by this this man. His father, his mother was married five times. Uh at at the point of this interview, I don't know if she married any further, because I believe she's still alive, his mother. She uh, might still be alive, but I don't think she'll be married again. No. But at this point in time, like he says that he was the one that primarily received beatings from uh Leo because he was the one that would stand up to him, where his brothers it's very little. He doesn't mention Rod by name, Rod McMahon, but he speaks about how his brother would get less of the treatment than he did. Uh, he also mentions this funny. He says the one thing I loathe is a man who will strike a woman. There's never an excuse for that. 
We're considering signing up for WWE programs. Yeah. Just just two years. Fast forward to when he's choking his daughter out with a pipe. Uh, uh, yeah, but it's wrestling. It's soap opera. You think, uh, he channel, you think he channels this Leo guy when he's doing these sadistic things? Or when I, he said or when he said on the mic just a few years ago, yeah, I can't wait to watch you get one more fucking beating to his son. Like, Well, let me ask you this then. Do you think he pictures his mother when he's doing the stuff with the divas? Because <laughs> he definitely just, mentions... Well, he mentions in the idea when he was asked whether any of the abuse was sexual. He said that he did suffer sexual abuse, but it wasn't from the male, is what he s- suggests. And then he doesn't really go into too much details about the fact that he, at this point he was estranged from his mother and seemingly was suffering some elements of sexual abuse from her. It does open the doors as to why, like, incest has been a bit of a theme. Yeah. He d- it does. He does seem to be weirdly fascinated with that subject. Well, and I mean, it wasn't like just the mother here. We, we He talks about his cousin. Ah, yes, we need to get onto this. So, I mean, let's let's first talk about, like, he, apparently he was, like, exposed to, like, sexual acts at a very early age. So he was court-martialed yeah, from military school. It says he remembers... I, I'll go like quote this entire thing even though it's going to make me probably feel a little sick in my stomach but I've got to say it anyway because <laughs> we're doing this for historical accuracy so yes. he says this and I quote do not quote this on me for fuck's sake do not quote this on me <laughs> and you can't <laughs> because I was never in the first grade because I'm English so fuck you so I remember probably in the first grade being invited to a matinee film with my stepbrother and his girlfriends and I remember them playing with me playing with my penis and giggling I thought it was pretty cool that was my initiation into sex. At that age, you don't necessarily achieve an erection, but it was cool. And then <laughs> talk- you know what? I have a question. Who are these girls that are just like jerking a six-year-old? Like, Did what this the fuck is commonly going on? at this point in time? Like in the <laughs> like in the fifties or whatever it was, like fifties and sixties. This happened all the time. I don't know. Was North Carolina? It's supposed to be why he hates Southern wrestling so much. He must assume that they all go around jerking six-year-olds. Like, and then, and then obviously insane. you talk about you talk about the cousin thing. So he talks about getting naked with his cousin in the woods and putting crushed leaves inside of her. It's all he wanted to do. Like he would look at her and just think, "God, I want to take these leaves, these crushed leaves, and just put them inside you." Do you think this is the May Young hand angle came from? It's like, just stuff anything up those? That's that's what happens? It's like... Do you think that's what happened is he stuffed the leaves up there and his hand came out covered in stuff and he's just like, this is it. This is the epitome of sex. He, talk, he talks further wrong about like sex in terms of like, his actual life. He says, in, in, in regards to sex, he says, I'm a giver. Whether it's performing in the ring or sexually, that's how I get off. I give. I get off on the number of orgasms a woman has when I'm the reason she's having them. He also says he's a woman's rights advocate, and he's big on a. Oh yeah, he is. And he's he's big on equal pay. (laughs) Fuck off! (laughs) Like legitimately, fuck off. I'm all for equal pay as long as I'm not the one paying. 
That's, that's... <laughs> I love that. He talks about his sleep pattern. He says that he sleeps about five hours a night. He says it takes him forever to get to sleep. He says uh, he learned that if your mind is going to race before you go to bed, you might as well enjoy the ride. Watch the visions. It's a colourful show. I'm also learning that as I get older, my dreams get less violent. Fucking hell. What is, <laughs> what, what is this guy? Not, he's not right. He is, he is not right. And I hope that when he dies, they take his brain and they study it for science because this dude is not right. But I do want to say, while well, we love our fearless leader, Tony Mango, that sleep stuff sounds awfully, awfully similar. I wonder how violent his dreams are, then. <laughs> how many leaders he stuffed up some like, poor cousin that he's had or something. Uh, I don't want to incriminate Tony. He's not here, but, you know, don't want to incriminate him too much. But he also talks about, again, going on the sex side of things. It is Playboy, after all. That's what they want to talk about. He talks about being unfaithful to Linda multiple times. Uh, so he says that he's had multiple affairs. Linda, every time that she would ask him about something, he has to admit to it. Because he said that he would never lie to Linda. So she asks, essentially, have you had an affair with so-and-so? And he says yes. And then she asks, what about this person? He says yes. And so, I mean, it, it's when you look at the Miss McMahon character, it's not surprising that the real Vincent Man, especially in the wrestling industry, had multiple affairs. Well, now let's think about this. Who is to say that these are just like, have you had an affair with? Sable, yes. Have you had an affair with? What if these names are like, you know, Patterson? Like, Vince McMahon is a very openly sexual person. For all we know, these are not just women. I, I honestly don't really want to say anything that might end up in a lawsuit if someone manages to hear this at some point. Well, so I... Okay, okay, that's fair. That's so fair. I'm not, I don't want to say who it might be, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were people associated with the wrestling industry in it. Well, not name names, but it's probably the people that you at home are thinking of. Well, Vince, we always also like to say that you are a great, humble man with creative genius and a little bit of vision. Yeah. Don't and then he, he says, essentially, at the walk towards the end of it, he says, I've not only been loyal, but faithful for about six years. So so he's saying six years. So this would place it back in 95. So this is before he probably would have even met Sable. So he may have been <clears> lying at that point in time, but considering the fact that he's admitted to all of it, I'd probably suggest that he's not. Do you Same think bit. he felt like, I'm, I might go to jail in 94, let me confess all of my sins to my wife? Uh, no, I think she just asked him because she was suspicious, and then he's, like he says, he just is honest with her about this stuff. And I, I kind of believe, I know it's hard to say, but I would believe Vincent Mann because of everything that he says and other sides of things, but I kind of believe this thing, because otherwise he might as well just say nothing about it. But, huh. then, but then he also talks about how he's put Shane, on, Shane McMahon on Ritalin as a kid. So essentially he believed that Shane, he thinks that he had learning difficulties and he thought that Shane had learning difficulties. You mean to tell me that Shane McMahon, the man who has to jump and dance around everywhere and jump off of high buildings, might have a case of ADD? Maybe. Potentially. Possibly. Um, yeah, I think I can buy that. He says the programming... Uh, on balance, we've never been we've never been raunchy. I'd say we're certainly more mainstream than uh, than we were several years ago, and we've pushed the envelope to a like 
too far a few times. He, he says in particular in terms of like pushing the envelope, he talks about the Mark Henry transvestite incident. But so, not the hand. Do you not know that one? Oh, no, he doesn't talk hand. about the hand. Just no, he doesn't. the transvestite, not the hand. No, he talks about how, obviously, bringing the, I think it was Sammy the transvestite with yep. China, and essentially Mark Henry sit, like getting touched up by him and saying that he had a penis. That's, like, oh, you got a penis. A penis. <laughs> like... um, he also talks about puppies, saying that it's a cute term for breasts, and that it, there's nothing yeah, raunchy about it, but you just call it puppies because that's cute and affectionate. And you yeah. just want to pet them and snuggle them, and you know, yeah, puppies. Yeah, I think he. I think this is a description that he kind of gives of just like the wrestling industry and how it's changed. It says in the early eighties and certainly before then, it was viewed as a six pack and a blowjob. But today's <laughs> performer is more sophisticated, educated. He's on the internet after his match or playing video games, or he wants to watch tape to study his performance. He does not go to the bar. So few of our performers even drink, much less do drugs and other things that were once run the mill. By well, drugs, I assume he means like cocaine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. By drugs, I assume he means things like cocaine rather than steroids, because everyone was on steroids at this point. So. But, um, what a mess. And he doesn't. And like one thing that you would want him to talk about, which is the federal trial. He basically just gives some sort of cursory glance to it. So, yeah, we got the fuckers. The fuckers had nothing on me and something on those lines, but it doesn't actually go into any detail about the case itself. Well, he, you got the fuckers. What else did you need to know? You got the fuckers. I think towards the end, he says about how he wants the character to die. And essentially, he says that he wants to be swallowed up by the next big thing in wrestling. Just essentially swallowed whole. And says that that would be like great television. And that's how the interview ends. Like, it's the most bizarre and amazing insight into the mind of the guy that's run the biggest professional wrestling company for the last 40-odd years. Well, it's, it's genuinely disturbing, and it makes me think, Triple H was raised in a nice home. I hope he would be a much better person to lead a company like this. He's he married a nice into that with... family. Stephanie's a product of that family. <laughs> She's a product of this man semen, as he would say. <laughs> but it's like, but yeah, I mean, I can't imagine like, he talks about how much he loves his kids because he doesn't want his kids to go through the, pro- the, the situation that he went through. So he's incredibly affectionate with Shane and Stephanie. But um, yeah, you kind of feel Again. like maybe he went too far the other way, but you get some sort of indication. You can't say, I don't think, and I definitely would never say that Vince is a bad father by any stretch of the imagination. But you kind of think that some of this is going to rub off on like this depravity, this sickness of the mind is going to rub off on the other two. Or, or if it already hasn't already. Well, Shane McMahon's been a nice married man for a while. He seems like he's able to detach himself from the family business. Stephanie, on the other hand, I wonder how much of it's rubbed off on her. Well, anyway, so just as any summary thoughts, any other thoughts about the interview itself? He also, he does say something about a female possibly holding the WWF title 
that he would never rule it out. But all in all, I think this is a wonderful interview that you should honestly leave a link in the description because people need to read this. Like, this needs to be read. Yeah, I might I might add a, a link to it as well because, yeah, you should read the entire thing. Like, we've given a bit of, like, the nice breakdown of it. So if you don't read it, then just listen to this and you probably get the gist of it. But you need to kind of just read all the turgid details that we may have missed off. Because we want to get done, like, in the next few hours or whatever, so. Uh, why don't we move on now, then, to... Now we've finished that side of things, let's get on to the real meat of the episode. The pay-per-view reviews, starting with Women's of Rest... Fucks, I keep saying that. <laughs> Women of Wrestling Unleashed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a fucking awful show. <laughs> with, oh, with awful, awful, like botches and my favorite being in the the ice cold hair versus hair match oh we'll get to like all of it but let's let's start from the beginning so this was um uh the 4th of february 2001 from the great western forum in ingleton california Nine thousand five hundred people attended the show i, I want to like mention this because i know i spoke earlier about the the amount of money that w like WOW lost, but they were actually pretty pretty damn popular in their local markets. They produced twenty four one hour episodes. Uh, they became the highest rated uh, like wrestling shows in the markets of New York and Los Angeles, and that's including WCW, WWF, everything. Wow, they were they were very highly rated shows, and like. It had shown a very steady growth as well in terms of viewership. But unfortunately, due to mismanagement of money, other costs that were taking place that were over-exceeding, because they were only on certain like television markets, I don't think they were on. They definitely weren't national-wide. They were very regional-based. But it like it just that, that was the reason why it ended up dying, because otherwise it would have just kept growing. They were actually pretty successful, despite as we will get onto the absolutely terrible wrestling and the cringy characters. But this was working in 2001. Unfortunately. So Women of Wrestling is the brainchild of David McLean, who was the also the, the brains behind the Glow Wrestling organisation. And Women of Wrestling is once again back on TV. Yes, with David McLean also like back at the helm. And uh, also, I'll, I'm trying to remember the name uh so it's also partly owned by the uh like the owner of the la lakers or the president of the la lakers uh whose um, name is do i find it quick genie but bus genie bus yes yes there it is yes. so she she appears on several skits with uh david mcclain on this show which the audio is so absolutely terrible i cannot listen i could not hear a single thing they were saying even with the volume completely up on my laptop yeah, and poor Bobby Heenan. For... Ah, this, yeah, I have to mention that. So the commentators for the show, because uh, David McClain was usually the commentator for like the hour-long episodes, but they brought in a special one to uh, team up with the main commentator, which is Stan, uh, Stan Marshall. Or Stan Lee Marshall. Marshall. Lee Marshall, sorry. Lee Marshall, because he's, I get confused because his name was uh, like Stagger Lee Marshall in WCW. Um... If you don't know, he was the voice of Tony the Tiger. Wow. 
I actually didn't know that. Yeah. He's um, got he's got like we'll talk about this obviously in more detail, but like he's got the perfect voice for these really seedy like he sounds like the voice that you'd have in a really seedy strip club. Yeah, and to go right back to that, he did a lot of work for the AWA when they were working in Vegas. That doesn't and, surprise me. Yeah. <laughs> and then he was joined with Bobby the Brain Heenan, who had left WCW at this point in time and was essentially doing the rounds at other country gigs. Oh, poor Bobby. Uh, what what just, do you think? What do you think of the commentary overall? As good as it could be. Really? Um, well, I'm I not going to crap on Bobby Heenan. I, I go through the lines of, uh, like, sexist, casually racist, uh, trying to make this seem like the biggest wrestling event in all history when clearly they knew what they were watching was terrible. Well, I mean, but as shitty as it sounds, that was their job. A lot of Bobby Heenan's zingers were casually sexist or casually racist. And it, it is 2001. It's products of the time. I mean, he's no worse than Jerry Lawler. He's probably better now, than Jerry Lawler. And to be clear, we don't like having to say this. We don't like having to look back on this stuff and going, well, times were different, but that's just a fact. Yeah. Times were different. Um, you also got a lot of, like the announcing for this show, uh, beyond the commentary, but the actual ring announcing is just horrendous as well. Like, the ring announcer just doesn't seem to know people's names, or he doesn't space out the names very well. So he just says, like, ice, cold. Like, just so, like, ridiculously spaced out. It's like he's reading off a cue card, and the writing is, like, the handwriting on them is terrible, so he's having to just, like, make it out every now and again. That's a very real possibility. So... Uh, we talked about obviously 9,500 people in attendance. The show actually wasn't was also available on pay per view, but only 6,500 people ordered that show on pay per view. And even the at its worst, WCW was pulling in well over 50,000 people at a time. And this only this like this might be one of the only wrestling shows in history that did worse on pay per view than in the actual show itself. Um. You know, I'm not going to lie, this is a product of the time. I saw a lot of really bizarre wrestling pay-per-views at the time. There was, like, weird Japanese things with Japanese hardcore wrestling, which didn't work out, and there's a botchery five minutes. That was on pay-per-view. I remember watching. Um, this was a time of Girls Gone Wild and, you know, women's extreme wrestling where it was basically porn and you know wrestling was this weird yeah people will buy this like seedy underbelly content it was very strange stuff to watch especially me i'm eight years old at this point like i was watching some fucked up shit oh, i don't know that <laughs> but let's let's talk about some overall themes for the show Namely, first of all, the production quality is absolutely atrocious. Even by 2001 standards, the sound fluctuates every now and again. The, the camera work is terrible. What do you think of it? I think it was bad, but it was about what you would expect from 
well, it's it's wrestling, and there's got to be lots of fireworks, and yeah, there's got to be scantily clad women. Well, these women weren't necessarily scantily clad, but they were dancing women with really bad pyro. With uh, I saw lots of table breaks on the show, which is interesting. We mentioned, yeah, I mentioned that a lot down the line, but so the show had thirteen matches. Why? Uh, in in a in a broadcast that went under three hours, so only one match went over ten minutes long, and the average ma- match length I actually just got all the times together and found this out was the average length of the match was five minutes and thirty seconds on pay per view. Just like terrible. unheard of nowadays. Imagine if Evolution was like that. Um, I think there's a good chance if it was done in two thousand one, it would have been. Probably, yeah. But you had... So, there's a lot of... Well, let's talk about the main event, just to round that side of things, because it, it feeds into a lot of other stuff on the show. So the main event was this ridiculous size cage match between... I mean, it was it took years for the Hell in a Cell to become that obnoxiously big between Fug and Selena Majors. Now, Fug and Selena Majors oh, were the two head... Were the two head trainers of this show, so they were the two people that were the like main trainers of all of the women on the show. Can we talk about the mullet game? The mullets were pretty fucking strong throughout the entire thing, but these two are meant to be training everyone else, and these two aren't very good. No, no, they really weren't. I thought this was one of the worst matches on the show. I mean, and let's put it this way: there are very few matches you could call the best. But these two are meant to be training everyone else, and they can't put a good match together. Ever their strikes are terrible. They're throwing. Each- I mean, they're making good use of the cage. I'll give them that. But their strikes are terrible. They're using very basic maneuvers. Uh, the referee, um, and this is yep. another. This is oh, another yes. big thing of this entire show. The ref bumps. I counted at least half a dozen ref bumps on this entire <laughs> show. But and this wrestling... one is the biggest one. Like, so essentially what happens is he gets hit about five times in this match and he decides, fuck this, I'm not I'm not dealing with this anymore. So he starts climbing the cage and Selena Majors starts like saying, oh, where are you going, fucker? And starts climbing up after him. So he's at the top of this giant, like, it must be 15, 20 feet high. And he's right at the top of it. And Selena Vega starts shaking, Selena Majors, not Selena Vega. Definitely not, definitely not have her on the show. But Selena Major starts shaking the cage and he falls like 15 feet through a table. The referee took the biggest bump of the entire show. Yeah. It's because ridiculous. It's, it's wrestling and the ref has to take the biggest bumps. So what happens is that like uh, Selena Vegas gets busted open really badly. Like she's bleeding all over the place. You said Selena Vega. Selena Majors, I can't help yeah, it. Yeah. Selena Majors is busted open really badly, and then like you have uh, Ice Cold comes out because she's previously been involved in a hair shaving match and she comes out com- almost completely bald, and just grabs one of the announcers' microphones and says, "I'm going to get you for this, uh, David McLean. This is your fault." Even though like he's just the the promoter of the show, he. He didn't lose the match, or he didn't interfere in the match in any way. And then, and then you cut back to the ring, like the 
like the match is still going on because this is the only match that goes anywhere past 10 minutes just like, like it gets quite boring because they're just doing the same shit over and over again and then they they do this convoluted finish where Terry Gold who's the world champion is also the special enforcer for this and Selena Majors has a pinfall on Fug but the referee's obviously gone through a table so he can't make the pinfall so Selena tries to get uh, uh Terry to take the the to Terry make the pin, yeah make her take like the pinfall, but then Fug gets the advantage, gets the pin, and Terry counts that. And hold on, no, no, you cannot overskip this count. She starts counting, and then realizes she's way out of position, so stops, moves into like where she can look at her shoulders, and then counts to three. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Who does that? Who counts to two? And then it's like, wait, I'm out of position. Let me go into position. As if it's going to make a difference in the story. One, two, three. So after that, uh, Majors gets really angry with Terry Gold and beats her up. So essentially, she's already been involved in the 50-minute match, and now she's just beating up Terry Gold. And every single referee that comes in contact with them gets beaten up as well. And so you're supposed to believe that it leads to an angle where Mage fights Harry Gold for the championship going down the line. But the company didn't last long enough for that to happen anyway, so you kind of just left with this lasting memory of it. Yep. We also have to talk about, we already mentioned it, but Ice Cold having the head shave match. This match was unbelievably <laughs> overbooked. I mean, it's unbelievably <laughs> terrible. So it's supposed to be a tag team match, pitting Ice Cold and... Who was her partner? Uh, I don't know. Try and find it. She didn't do well in her job. Let me tell you. Oh, no. So, oh, sorry, so it's meant to be uh, Ice Cold and Poison against Patty Pizzazz and Lana Starr. But Patty <laughs> Pizzazz is injured, so she can't make it out. So it becomes a handicap match when supposedly the babyface team of Poison and... Uh, Ice Cold are facing the heel Lana Star, and Lana Star manages to like hold her own against these two people, and then in the finish, so essentially like there's so many like ridiculous distractions going on like the referee, like Poison distracts the referee when her partner has a pinfall, to make sure the referee can't make the count, and then uh. Like, Poison inadvertently hits Cold with a crutch, and then Star gets the pinfall, and then Poison just walks up the ramp. So you're meant to believe that that Poison was actually on Lana's side, but they don't make that very clear. Really? Because you just enlightened me that Lana is supposed to be the heel here. Well, she's, like, I... the, the, she's like the bitchy pop star. Yeah, but I thought the bitchy pop star in L1 would have been the baby face and this ice cold, you know, bitch what was the heel. Well, no, the idea was that, like, she was feigning injury to try and get out of the match. Like, she came out on crutches with her ankle uh, taped up or something along those lines in a cast. And that was supposed to her getting out of the match. So she was the heel. But then she was in a handicap match against two babyfaces, and then one of the babyfaces screwed the other babyface, and that caused the other babyface to lose. 
And then I'm going to say, the way the referees were holding down Ice Cold, I really thought she was the heel. And it was like, no, don't shave my head. That you know? was definitely, like, that would be, like, a disclaimer warning on certain movies. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Just, like, have the piece of, like, cloth around her mouth and everything while she's <laughs> getting her head shaved. It's like... Yeah. Should, should we also mention that this is obviously 2001 and women are good for one thing, which is their bodies? And... Yeah, by the way, though, this would never happen in the WWF because Vince McMahon is a fan of equal pay and he loves women and women's rights. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there was a big swimsuit competition going on as well. So fans were invited to vote uh, online for the winner of the swimsuit competition. So essentially between most of the matches, there would just be these like three minute long vignettes of just women in bikinis in the middle of photo shoots. And like the worst thing about it, I mean, obviously you're just looking at hot women and at the end of the day, I'm a straight male. I'm going to enjoy it to a certain extent, even though it's a little bit ridiculous. But the most ridiculous thing about it is that Marshall is like talking over the top of it. Like the commentators are talking over the top of the video. Like it's not got like a big announcer. It's not just playing music or anything along those lines. Like he's just watching it on the screen and just commentating over the top. Like, oh yeah, she looks great and stuff like along those lines. Like, really? Well, I'm just glad that uh, Bobby Heenan didn't start shouting puppies. Yeah. I mean, you could tell that this these these women were only being trained in absolute basics because essentially every match had these common themes. They had body a body slam, a snap near, a running crossbody, a middle rope crossbody, flying clotheslines, leg drops, splashes, like striking, which like you talk about how bad some striking is nowadays with certain like wrestlers on the mainstream. But these people were just like touching each other, like the clubbing forearms in the back, which just didn't look like they were doing any damage whatsoever. Like the the striking on this show overall was about as hideous as I've ever seen on any wrestling show. But it's as cliche wrestling, especially in 01, as you get. You know, it's like, well, you've got to do a clothesline, and you've got to do a body slam, and you've got to do, you've got to jump off the top rope. Let's, uh, let's talk about the gimmicks, because everybody had a gimmick. This is this is obviously the creative glow. Everyone has a gimmick. So we had things like, like, Biker gangs, cowgirls, teachers, policewomen, uh, cheerleaders. I mean, like, did any of them stand out? Was this produced by Brazzards? (laughs) I'm sure they would have, like, (laughs) I don't even think Brazzards would uh, like to be associated with this sort of stuff that was going on. Yeah, the production values would have been better. But uh, the one that's... uh... To, the most to me is the prison gang group that opened the show. Hate, oh, I think Hate. Wasn't it the name of WCW's home cell? I think I think that was no, that was like one of the steel cages matches that like Booker T would have and stuff like that. They had a cage heat matches. I actually I thought cage heat were very charismatic. I mean they were terrible in the ring in their tag team match. That was one of the worst matches on the entire thing because it was just it didn't follow any structure of any tag team match I've ever seen. Just like people just running in when they felt like it, just no heat whatsoever, no hot hot tag segment, anything along those lines. It was just absolutely atrocious. No heat in a cage heat match. I want my money back. But they were very charismatic and they were very good on the microphone. So I think they definitely had potential. Like some of the, 
I'm, I don't want to be like overly negative on this show because it was a horrible show, but I kind of had a like a perverse amount of fun watching it. Yeah. And you know what you're getting into. I knew what I was getting into when I found it on YouTube and sent it to you. It was like, this is a mess. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was a mess. But, like, I didn't imagine I'd have this much fun. I'm going to just spoil it right now. I had more fun watching this than I did uh, Super Brawl Revenge. Yeah, that's fair. That's uh, fair. And there were actually some people that I thought had some real potential if they'd gotten some more training. Uh, I thought, in particular, uh, Boom Boom, who was, who was the... Um, uh, like the Samoan lady in one of the tag team matches against the uh, Asian, was it the Asian Express was their name? Because again, everything's just like, just throw the two Japanese girls together in a tag team. It's like... And that sounds very clear to uh, the Orient Express. Yeah. But I thought she was really good. Like, like she actually had her striking down. She was had a, a variety of moves. She looked like she had like, a decent amount of like power and she could have gone somewhere. I thought Jade in that match as well was very good, because she did a um, a top rope Hurricane Rana on Boom Boom at one point as well. I think the ta- they were teaming up with this woman called Caliente, who just couldn't work at all, but because she did, like, sexy salsa dancing, she was then in a prominent position. But, and of, but... course, of course her name was Caliente, like, what else do you name a salsa dancer? And to be fair, that was one of the ones the announcer actually did quite well because he just like stretched out Caliente for about ten seconds. Uh, there were some other ones that were actually pretty good, like uh, Nikki Order, the disciplinarian. I thought was pretty good, even though her promo skills weren't that great. That big storyline of like I bought your ranch, Bronco. That was <laughs> so ridiculous. Uh, Slam Dunk, like she was pretty tall, so I think she could have gotten somewhere in WWE. Uh. Riot. Like, hope she was crazy. And so I, I she couldn't do a Riot, But I thought Riot could have been something in terms of the character. Oh yeah, she actually, she actually like when I don't, I mean, I'm not entirely sure what her character was, but she was definitely bought into it, whatever it was. <laughs> Just like some crazy chick, but like she couldn't do a power and save her life. Like in the um the uh the title match between uh, Terry Gold and Danger, she takes. She like tries to get uh, Danger up for a powerbomb first time and just can't get her up and drops her right on her head on the floor. It's like so bad. How many table fucking crashes were there on this show? I saw well, a lot of rock bottoms through tables. Well, that was essentially that was a video package building up the Danger versus Terry Gold match. So Danger's thing was that she would rock bottom people through tables. So because she did that multiple times. It's 2001, guys, in case you didn't know. Yeah. But then you also had... Uh, I thought Jungle Girl was pretty good, and Becky as well. Like, Becky, the um, I think the farmer's daughter was her name. Of course it was. I don't, like, I don't understand why even now, like, the wow that they have now is still very gimmicky. It's a little less so because they have people like Tessa. Oh, yeah. But, like, I, I don't understand why they're just, like, wrestlers need to still be Jake the Snake Roberts and... You know, Hillbilly Jim. I don't get that. Well, I think it's... I personally don't like, don't mind it because it's different. Because I think one, like, one of the things that... We we like the realism that the attitude error and things, and the ruthless aggression and all that sort of things brought. But nowadays, wrestlers are so generic. They don't have gimmicks. They're just extensions of themselves. 
And because wrestlers aren't that interesting, as we spoke about, they're now more sophisticated. They're on the internet checking their match reviews or playing video games or whatever. They don't have that interesting aspect to their character as much anymore. Whereas if you actually give them gimmicks and if they can actually wrestle and work and be a bit more flamboyant, then it can actually, as long as you're one of the only people that are doing it, it's not the norm like it was back in like the mid-90s. I think it can actually work, and I think it's doing good things for WOW now with their superhero show. Well, I am interested to see where it goes. I hope it can stick around for longer than it has in the past. Um, Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, more wrestling, most importantly for the talent, is very good because now we don't have, you know, talent like we used to where it was like, oh, wow. A hot model wants to get into wrestling because she thinks she might make some money. Now the people who get into it want to be wrestlers. So that's yeah, right. Yeah, that makes me feel way better about stuff like this. Yeah. But any other closing thoughts about the show before we move on to the next one? Mullets forever, baby, man. Thug. Uh, Thug was like the quintessential women's wrestler, down and dirty, mud wrestler kind of person. Like, Amazing. I would I would say like uh, even though we said that obviously the show is you, you can't go in there expecting the highest quality of wrestling or production quality, but I'd say just for the fascination I'd give this one a watch if you haven't seen it before. It's definitely like worth the time. There's nothing entertainment to be get to be derived from it. Just from a like botchamania type style watch through of it. But let's move on to a show which I can't recommend as highly, which is. WCW Super Raw Revenge. So, WCW Super Raw Revenge takes place 18th of February uh, from Nashville Municipal Auditorium. The attendance was 4,395, so uh, more than half as many people uh, as the the WIW show. So, great job there, WCW. Uh, but the pay-per-view buys were significantly higher, around 70,000 buys. I also checked um, like the average max length as well, just to see how it was in comparison to WOW. So this had a 9 minute 40 average match length. That's about the standard for that time in wrestling. Yeah, so it's about twice as long as the, the WOW average match. Uh, so any, what's your overall thought to the show? It didn't seem like it was that far off. From what we would see from like WWE B shows in a few years and even TNA shows. Like it seemed like it could hang. You know what I mean? I think so. Like it wasn't, it, uh, I wouldn't say it was spectacular. It's something that you could easily just skip past and not really take anything away from. But it wasn't terrible. It's certainly like a company that doesn't feel like it's on its last legs. At least not to the point of, wow, you know, in a few months they wouldn't even exist. Uh, just like a little uh, tidbit before we move on to the main show. Might go match by match on this side of things, but uh, Chris Harris, or m- more famously known Braden Walker, was in the uh, dark match of the show. Really? Did he say knock? Did he say knock knock? Uh, I don't know about that, but he definitely defeated Kid Romeo. In the dark match. So, all kidding aside, AMW would have been like 10 time WCW Tag Team Champions had WCW not folded. 
well, let's put it this way, WCW just became DNA, so... Just, like, slightly different, obviously, but, you know, it's it's still pretty much the same. So, yeah, they would have done well in WCW. So, obviously, as we mentioned before, the big storyline coming into this is the uh, Magnificent Seven stable. So, Ric Flair is the CEO of uh, WCW at this point in time. He's got all his crew around him. And, essentially, the ongoing storyline of the show is that they were trying to get rid of all of the baby faces before the main event to make sure that they would stand tall at the end. So and they sure they did a lot of shit yeah. to make sure that they stood tall at the end. And also, like, somehow, the cat lost the commissionership that he won at, at uh, Sin. He lost it to Lance Storm, and now he was fighting to get the commissionership back again on this show. Well, we ran out of ideas, clearly. Oh, yeah, well, it's like, just run the same idea again. It's just, well, well let's just... We'll go, we'll go like, match by match with this one, just give a little odd things. Like, to me, just like as the overall aspect of it, this ranged from somewhere between extremely boring to extremely overbooked. And there were plenty of, like, botches around the way. The commentary was fine. Tony Schiavone and Scott Hudson did a decent job again. But... I thought I they think... were a little overdramatic. Oh, yeah, but... I think, I think they were kind of checked out. Or Tony Schiavone, at the very least, was checked out at this point in time. It was just, like... Doing exciting himself more than anything else, really. So the opener was a six-way cruiserweight match. Uh, I'm gonna guess you liked this match. I did. You know, I thought it was. I thought it was pretty well wrestled. A little confusing on the rules because it's one of those like, it's tag match, but not really. And like, this is the same crew of guys who did the ladder match at a uh, Starcade. The year prior, I, I mean, I would I would say like I thought this match was hideously bad in places. Like it, it I mean, it was. I think by the end of it, like the final match between uh, Shane Helms and Kaz, like as the final two people in this elimination match, was really well wrestled and was actually had some decent near falls at towards the end of it. But the rest of it was just like very like overthought. Like every time. And I mean, every time that Evan Courageous and Yang were in the match together, something went horribly wrong. Like, whether it was a... Like, Yang tried to do a springboard moonsault and slipped on the ropes. Like, they... I think they tried to do some sort of, uh, like, spot early, and then they ended up just pushing each other into the corner, and I think legitimately started fighting each other. <laughs> because, like... Like, I think Courageous, like, starts to... Just tries to lift up Yang for something. And you just like they both get caught up with each other, and then they just head to the corner, and then you just like see them just like wailing each other, like fuck you, fuck you, fuck that, no, you fuck that up, and it's just like everything is going horribly wrong. Craig just was terrible in this match. Uh, other than that, the other people were pretty good. Like Nobles, Jamie Nobles, like great, very competent at all the times. There was a good number of like diving spots, so the crowd were interested. This was actually the longest match of the entire show. They gave it plenty of time, and I mean, it wasn't it wasn't horrible. But I think, as well as that, like the the Moore and Helms breakup was like hideously handled. Well, what I noticed about this match is everybody here became something, except Evan Courageous. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Like, you know, you mentioned Yang messing up some stuff, but. 
Jimmy Wang Yang or Akio did some very good stuff in WWE. Oh, he was great. He, he was great. I don't I don't place as much of the blame. I mean, he had an off night, but I don't place as much of the blame on him as I did Courageous, who I just think was always very botch prone throughout his entire WCW run. All right, then you had after that you had Hugh, Hugh Morris, no longer general erection against the Wall. This match was fucking awful. Like, it, it felt like the match had been going on 20 minutes when it had only been going about five. They were selling stuff ridiculously. Like, imagine, like, you imagine, like, a 30-minute long match between Seth Rollins and Dolph Ziggler, let's say, for instance. At that point in time, like, you'd expect people to be selling pretty heavily or, like, struggling to get to their feet. They were struggling to do that after three minutes in this match. They were just laying down on the mat. It's like, get up, actually wrestle. You haven't been wrestling for that long. The hot shot really stood out in my mind here. Hugh Morris goes to pick uh, the wall up for a hot shot. Misses horribly. <laughs> does something to him. And then immediately starts lifting him again. And suddenly, I guess this dude just got the energy to like hop hop up because he jumps high all of a sudden and there's a, the hot shot I I don't want to talk too down on this match because I actually kind of liked Hugh Morris and I know unfortunately the wall is no longer living but what a what, just what a bad what a bad showcase of wrestling in 2001 Oh, yeah, absolutely. And after watching this, I'm kind of happy that Hugh Morris isn't training people anymore in NXT. Regardless of whether he was a good or bad person or not, he just shouldn't be training people with this sort of match quality. Did You, you know, I do want to mention the commentary, because this, this one pissed me off. They're like, oh, my God, he's lost it. He's going to hit him with a second moonsault. It's like, really? That's the kind of stuff where wrestling hyperbole is not needed. Like, two moonsaults isn't going to kill you, you know, especially we know in this day and age. And even then, too, like, let's not pretend. We knew two moonsaults wouldn't kill the wall. No, you you can't break the wall with <laughs> with just two moonsaults. You need you need Chris Jericho to break down the wall. Yeah, you, you need the lion salt, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So then you had the tag team titles match, which was essentially a, a split of the natural-born fillers. So you had Chuck Palumbo and Sean O'Hare on one side. Mark Jindrak and Sean Stasiak on the other side. This match, I mean, I want to mention first of all that Scott Hudson says during commentary that this match features the future of wrestling, which was so it, it wildly accurate. It, it could have. I can see why looking at this match in 2001, you're like, this is the future of wrestling. I mentioned last month that if you look at the natural born thrillers, they look like, wow, these are some main event looking dudes yeah but just with the benefit of hindsight we look back and just see how just ridiculous a statement that ended up being yeah it's laughable uh what is up with the kurt henning theme song so yeah that was that was used by sean stasiak for a while like he used the mr perfect theme i don't know whether that is a a network edition but the idea was that i think sean stasiak was running with a gimmick of being like not Mr. Perfect per se, but being like the standout guy, like he everything he does is with absolute precision and perfection. 
I can't remember what his actual nickname was, but it was something like the... Uh, I believe it was the perfect event. Yeah, the perfect event, that's it. And also, at this point in time, Kurt Henning is not wrestling for WCW, so they might have actually just taken his music and used it. But who knows? Uh, this match features the longest tag team heat sequence I've ever seen, where like Chuck Palumbo is beaten up for a good ten minutes without any reprieve, and it's so boring and plodding, and... Like there's there's no intrigue. This isn't a like revival. So good at the heat, mixing things up, sort sort of thing. This is just two guys just hitting moves on Palumbo for ages. So I'm gonna ask you if you had to pick one of these guys, and let's say you have your 2001 goggles on, who is the future of wrestling? Sean O'Hare is the future of wrestling. Yeah, that's that's a pretty fair assessment. Because Sean O'Hare gets the hot tag eventually, and then the match is over in about two minutes. And he does the Shantan bomb. Great name. Yeah, so he does that, and then, like, you just get a cover immediately, and then it's over. Like, I just think, I've been watching this match for however many minutes, of just this one guy getting beaten up, and then he comes in, in a couple of seconds, and it's over. It's like, there's, what was the psychology in this match? Like, who was... Shadow Hair is a star. I guess so, but, like... And I believe, uh... Johnny Laurinaitis was probably producing. Well, if, if Sean O'Hare's the star, then why does this match have to go as long as possible and have Sean O'Hare just... Why doesn't Sean O'Hare just do this after five minutes? Because he couldn't get the hot tag. <laughs> uh, but then we move on to the Cruiserweight Championship match between Chavo Guerrero and Rey Mysterio. I, I'm just going to put it out there. Rey Mysterio had a really off night on this show. Unmasked Rey Mysterio sucks. Fight me. An unmasked Ribster is awful. And oh. I'm not the biggest fan of Chavo Guerrero. I'm not, not the biggest fan either. I mean, you have Eddie Chance going on quite early on in this match. And I mean, at least I'll give him some slack here. Because this is not in an era where he's just doing Eddie's moveset. No, definitely not. But I, th- I think he really holds it together in this match. Because Mysterio is not having a good night. Like, he is out of control in a lot of his spots. He's, like, Rey Mysterio, you see, is, like, just some guy that can pull off the absolute incredible stuff. But he was he was another guy that slipped on the middle rope trying to do a springboard attack. He slipped up and, like, trying to do moonsaults and stuff like that. Like, Travo is having to do a lot of work because Mysterio is messing up royally in a lot of these spots. I, th- I think the big spot in this match is that Hurricane Rana to the floor because... Guerrero hits the mat at a rate of knots and he bounces off the ground. And I think that's that's down to Mysterio messing up again because I think he he fell he falls down too quickly and that causes Guerrero who can't just like leap off the apron and land with a little bit more placement. He's just literally thrown to the ground. I am glad that Mysterio didn't immediately jump ship and like, took a year to work indies, and then when they brought him in, they brought him in fully masked, fully gimmicked, you know, like, back to being Rey Mysterio. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, the finish involves, like, just, uh, essentially, one, the babyface wants to use a weapon that the heel introduced, the referee takes that weapon away, the heel gets another weapon, hits Mysterio in the face with it, Chavo hits the brain buster and gets the win. So it was, a, it was an okay match, but, like, I think these two would be capable of producing better. 
and they definitely did produce better down the line in WWE. Yeah. Uh, next up was uh, Dustin Rhodes against Rick Steiner for the United States Championship. Fuck so, this match. <laughs> so Sorry. for some reason they've turned just Dustin Rhodes into a Stone Cold Steve Austin character. Which is... <laughs> I but... love Dustin Rhodes. Yeah, Dustin... So this goes back to my fucking statement of you... You're Dusty's son, and you want to be so badly the outlaw badass that Dusty was perceived to be, and it's like, it's not you, man. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely during the, like, wilderness years for Dustin Rhodes. Like, whether it was Goldust or Dustin Rhodes, and then after that into, like, the Black Rain era, this was when he was kind of just all over the place, both physically and mentally. And, I mean, Rick Steiner's, I think he's a very underrated wrestler. I mean, he's a great wrestler, but, like, he's someone who goes under the radar when people talk about, like, the Steiner's as great tag teams. But Rick really was a, a real hoss that could throw people around a lot. I would like to see, like, Rick Steiner, maybe, like, a 98 or even 99, 2000, versus, like, a 2002 Brock Lesnar. Be a really good match. Yeah, that would be a great match. I think, like, an early Rick Steiner against someone like Kurt Angle as well. Like, just get two big wrestlers together that just are really technically sound, but also will just beat you up when they're not getting their way. would be just great. Uh, he's, he's he's currently got this uh this catchphrase of, if you don't like me, bite me. Great. Which I actually quite like. I think that's a good one. Because he's obviously the, the dog-faced gremlin. Yeah, he's a dog. Hmm. But so this is the for the second match in a row we have essentially the spot of referee uh, prevents the babyface from using a weapon. The this distraction allows the heel to cheat to win essentially. Are you suggesting that wrestling was formulaic in two thousand one? I'm just saying that they may not have planned out how they were going to separate these matches out as well as they possibly could have. But that's just a suggestion. Okay, next match was totally buffed against Chronic. So. All right, so we're not going to talk about Chronic in the WWF for a while, but watching Chronic here, I remember little eight-year-old me being way too excited for when they would eventually face Taker Jane, and they, I they thought Chronic was fucking awesome. They were good. I mean, the storyline heading into this match is that uh, Brian Clark has to go to the doctors to get medically cleared. And essentially he goes to the doctors and if we find out later that he was taken out, essentially. And Brian Adams has to come to the ring alone. But he doesn't think he's going to the ring alone because he's followed by someone who's dressed up as Brian Clark. <laughs> so he has the match, which ends up being a handicap match because the quote-unquote Brian Clark gets taken out with a chair on the outside. So Adams is wrestling alone against both Lex Luger and Buff Bagwell, and it's 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 okay. It's it's nothing special. I mean, none of these guys were particularly great in the ring, but Clark, Adams is holding his own, and he's getting a good reaction because he's fighting against the odds. And then just when he thinks that his tag team partner is going to recover and get back in the match, it turns out that it was actually Mike Awesome in disguise. So Mike that's, Awesome. So that's Mike, awesome. Come on. Yeah. So Mike Awesome attacks him, and so it's now three on one. Takes over and then totally buff gets the win. So, I mean, that's a nice little twist. 
I'll, I'll put, I'll give, I'll give them credit. I mean, with so many, so many overbooked finishes, and this is another one. It kind of jars you a little bit, but it was, it was a clever way of doing things. I thought, I thought the Lex Luger buff battle tag team was pretty good. Gen, generally, I liked what was happening here. Maybe not in like an in-ring standpoint, but I can see why these guys were in the positions that they were and why they were stars. I think, again, had WCW been able to stay around, Chronic would have been a major tag team for like the next three to five years. Totally Buffs could have been a major tag team. Or, you know, Lex Luger could have always transitioned into the main event scene. He's one of those guys who really falls off the face of the earth after the uh, company gets taken over. Yeah. Uh, well, personal problems will do that. But That's true. We won't go into that too much detail, because instead we'll go into Lance Storm versus The Cat. Uh, Lance Storm is such a great wrestler. And I think he's someone who, I mean, we talk about Rick Steiner, but Lance Storm is somebody that definitely goes under the radar as for just his incredible ability as a heel. Like, they do this stuff at the beginning, which is like classic heel baby face over Cat, like, raises his arms up for the crowd, and the crowd cheer, and Storm raises his arms up, and he gets booed, and it's just like, it's so basic, but it really works. And you Storm... think you could do that nowadays? Oh, definitely. I think I think people should do that, more of that stuff. I think you'd save it more for like a, a comedy match angle, but I think people should be doing that. I, I mean, to be fair, I would totally buy that spot in the Kofi Kingston Daniel Bryan's title match that we're having soon. Oh yeah, that's you know I wouldn't mind seeing that. And then you have um, Storm actually knows how to do a heat segment, which stays engaging and interesting, which is a skill that not many heel wrestlers have nowadays. But and then the cat, but essentially he spends the entire time attacking the cat's leg, and then as soon as the cat starts to come back, his leg is perfectly fine. So that is like, wow, cat was doing indie wrestling before indie wrestling was even a thing. It's like, like so he's just like dancing around and like doing his little jig, or whatever. Just no interest in like selling the leg that was like thrown into the ring post a couple of minutes earlier or whatever. And then the, the finish at the end is again convoluted. So. Uh, Mike Sanders, who was the previous commissioner, comes out to try and distract the cat, but then he gets kicked in the head by Miss Jones. That distracts Lance Storm, and then the cat hits his own kick and gets the win, and he's the commissioner again. But, crucially, for the actual the way the rest of the night goes, he's only becomes the commissioner after midnight on that night. So he wasn't the commissioner until that point. So Lance Storm was still the commissioner until that, then. Um... They overused the cat in their last two years. For some reason, whoever was, like, really in charge had a huge hard-on for the cat. Because he's, like, in a lot of major segments between 2000 and 2001. And I just don't get it. So we move on then to DDP versus first uh, Canyon and then Jeff Jarrett. It was supposed to be just Jeff Jarrett, but... Jeff Jarrett plays this weird video package where DDP repeats about 20 times that he'll face Canyon anytime, anyplace. And then Canyon comes out, like, from behind, and then him and DDP have a decent match. Uh, yeah, I always like these two working together. I always like Canyon, to be honest. He's he's called the innovator of... Well, he, he goes by the first name of, like, the innovator of violence. I know that's what Tommy Dreamer eventually becomes, but, like, he's... The idea of Canyon is that he essentially uses new moves every single match that he has. And he ends up, like, 
beating up DDP, hits his own version of like the diamond car, but then eventually gets pinfall. Uh, after Jarrett interferes, gets the distraction. And then, yeah, so Canyon gets the win, and then he introduces Jeff Jarrett, who have his own match with DDP. DDP's been busted open at this point, and Jarrett takes control for the most part. And and I think this was actually a pretty decent match as well. Like, this is probably my favourite match of the entire show. Because yeah. these two can work. And even though I'd say stuff like Jeff Jarrett probably shouldn't have been a world champion, these two could really work their asses off. And they yeah, did try D- and make it as entertaining as possible. DDP, for me, was always one of those guys. I was shocked when I learned how old he actually was. Because, mm. like, he really was a very big component into the WCW machine. And just one of my favorite guys to watch. And he was in such phenomenal shape. And he was just moving around like he was a guy half his age. That DDP yoga, man, that'll do that to you. Yeah, I know, but I can see why so many people like take it up now, because it clearly works. If it worked for him, it can work for anybody. And then DDP gets, after losing the match against Canyon, gets a win over Jeff Jarrett after Canyon botches his own interference, which leads to Jarrett hitting him over the head with guitar, then DDP hitting the diamond cutter and getting the win. Uh, a lot of overbooked stuff, but, you know, it is the season. And this was building DDP up to, well, supposedly have the match against Scott Steiner agreed, so... And speaking of Scott Steiner, we had Scott Steiner against Kevin Nash. In the most overbooked match of all time. I mean, of the week for WCW, I'd probably say at this point in time, you can't really. In, in a night that was full of complete total overbooking, like this one where he took the cake. So essentially, Ric Flair comes out because he's on commentary, and then he comes to the ring and says that, announces that the loser of this match also lo- leaves WCW. And he's under the assumption that Kevin Nash, because he had his uh, leg quote-unquote broken, or attacked with a steel pipe uh, by Steiner in the weeks building up to this, that he wouldn't make the show. And then Kevin Nash comes out in a wheelchair with two like nurses pushing him out. And Steiner says, oh, you got balls for turning up. And then he t- turns his back, George acts with the crowd a little bit. Kevin Nash gets out of the wheelchair. The cast that was there isn't actually attached to his leg. And then he comes in, immediately hits Scott Steiner with the title belt and scores a victory. And, and Ric then, Flair freaks out. Yeah, no, no, two out of three falls. Yeah, it's actually meant to be a two out of three falls, no disqualification match. And then DP like wants to come out to try and help him because he knows he's going to get screwed. So then he gets attacked by Holy Buff backstage. And then Steiner uh, hits Kevin Nash in the head with a lead pipe shot, and he tries to get Kevin Nash back into the ring, but he's like dead weight, so he can't move. So he runs up to Ric Flair and says. Make it force cat anywhere, and then Ric Flair announces that it's force cat anywhere as well, and then he gets yeah. the pin. That was, a, that was a nice touch. And then they just wrestle the rest of it. This, I mean, we'll talk about the Triple H Stone Cold match, which essentially like just like a warfare of weapons. Like these guys were just hitting each other with fucking everything, like brass knucks. Like Scott Steiner was just hitting Nash repeatedly in the head with brass knucks, and Nash was staying standing <laughs> because he's Kevin Nash. And then, like, using steel chairs, using pipes. Uh, Nash had the match won multiple times, but the referee kept being taken out by Medasia through the thing. So he hits the jackknife, but Medasia stops the referee. So Nash hits Medasia with a sidewalk slam because violence against women is allowed at this point in time. <laughs> and then Steiner, and then Steiner uh, hits him again with, like, the pipe. 
and then he locks him into the Steiner recliner. After Nash became the first person ever to break out of the Steiner recliner because he's Kevin Nash. And <laughs> I, don't, I just say, but there's more, more and more evidence every time I watch it. Listen, if it's not going to be Hogan, yeah. who else is it going to be? And then, he gets, so he gets out the Steiner recliner the first time, but then he's locked into it afterwards and he's forced to pass out and referee claws it. Steiner wins two falls to one. And then Nash just, like, you see a frustrated Nash as they fade to black at the end of the show. So, incredibly overbooked main event for a, a show that was kind of top to bottom overbooked. I mean, again, it's not the most terrible WCW show. Like, you expect far worse from some WCW shows, especially in the 2000s. But it's definitely not one that I would, I'm going to go back and watch, like, anytime soon. All in all, it wasn't anything to write home about. But again, it wasn't anything that would be like, yeah, they're they're closing down tomorrow. You know? Yeah, I understand that. But let's talk about an event that you definitely would write home about, which is No oh, Way yes. Out 2001. Now, if you compare this to the B shows of WWE nowadays, this is a whole other This is WrestleMania. This, this is, is WrestleMania. This is a WrestleMania tier event, and this is just the show building up to WrestleMania. Now, we talk about this, we're just going on the lines of WWE has, after this, we have, after the Royal Rumble, which was a great success, Armageddon 2000, which was a very good show as well, and then you have WrestleMania 17, which many people regard as the greatest pay-per-view of all time. Has WWE ever had a hot streak of pay-per-view events like this? No, but you know what? There's no hot streak that doesn't result in an immediate downslide and the invasion is coming up shortly after this oh absolutely it it really hits hard but this show oh my god and we're gonna talk about it a lot but that austin triple h match is one of the specific like i remember as a kid just being like this is fucking great this is so cool this match is why i like wrestling Alright, so let's just get the admin out of the way early. So this is 25th February from the Thomas and Mack Centre in Las Vegas. Uh, 15,000 in attendance, 590,000 buys on pay-per-view. So just the, just the like, nine times more viewers than the WCW show was getting. But, uh, yeah, generally considered one of the greatest B pay-per-views of all time. And as we mentioned earlier, this is the last pay-per-view for Jerry the King Lawler on commentary or in the ring until uh like december so i I guess we should just lead off with that this was i don't say this was a two-match show it definitely wasn't a two-match show but there were two big matches and we'll lead with the first one which was austin versus triple h three stages of hell in a a 45 minute odd absolute war like that that's the only way i can describe this match as a total war between two teams not two teams two guys this is one of those matches that I go, Triple H is remembered for being a title hog in, like, the mid-2000s. But, like, as a working heel, is there anyone better, especially at this time, than Triple H? And Stone Cold, when he got the chance to really, you know, engage in a good wrestling match... He shined like no other, and everything about this match 
was so good. I would say, I was sort of saying controversial about this match, saying something that I know you won't agree with. And it's not the case that I, I definitely really enjoy watching this match. I've watched it multiple times. Going back to watch it again was just a great pleasure. But do you think this is a little bit of a mockery of professional wrestling? In the sense that they were hitting each other with everything. Every big move, every weapon available. Like you had barbed wire bats, you had sledgehammers, steel chairs, multiple shots on all of them. You had a steel cage later on and stuff like that. And they were kicking out of everything. It's like, how, I think... like when, I'm just going to the lines of, how can I watch an Austin Triple H match later on that goes, I don't know, seven minutes and ends in a clean pinfall? I think you're absolutely right in that regard, though. I think matches like this do make other matches very difficult to watch and believe because you'll have a match like this where god they just won't stay down and then like the next night on raw somebody will get hit with a chair and they won't be able to move for 10 minutes my my if i was to give any sort of justification for it it's the idea that there was such a hefty build towards this and these two were so i guess motivated to not lose this match that it kind of adds an extra layer of real power. Like I think, like if you're looking for like a modern equivalent, then you look at the Gargano Champa matches of like recent memory, where these are matches where the two guys go beyond the limits of how they would normally do in any other typical match. But it's because it's those two, and they're in such a heated rivalry, you can kind of justify it a little bit more. And other matches that come to mind, you know. In 2009, Undertaker Shawn Michaels, John Cena and Edge had a last man standing match where, like, they did just about everything and they did not stay down. Matches like that come to mind here. Yeah, and at the end of the day, this was a hell of a lot of fun. And it was, the crowd were going crazy for it. Triple H, as much as I have often ragged on him for like, being the total hog that he was and for getting his own way, you get a sense of, like, this guy was just on the top of his game at this point in time. And Austin, while not the, now just a complete brawling style wrestler, was still, like, as great at, like, putting a match together. Triple H took so many big bumps in this one, like, the, the giant backdrop through the announce table immediately springs to mind. You know, and he has to be pissed here. He knows he's going into WrestleMania, and they're not really sure of what they're doing with him. There's rumors of Tyson, there's a potential Undertaker match, but they're not really sure of what they're doing with Triple H. And we'll see, in a few months, he'll be Intercontinental Champion. So we go along the lines of Austin uh, wins the first fall, which was a regular match with Stone Cold, St Stone Cold Stunner. Uh, Triple H then wins the street fight that was following it with a sledgehammer shot to the head and then followed with a pedigree because Triple H has to hit his move. And the final thing was a steel cage where they are basically just hitting each other with anything that was like, not nailed down and throwing each other into the steel all the time. Uh, uh, Cole kicks out of a pedigree and then Triple H kicks out of the stunner. And then they both, Triple H hits Austin in the head with a steel, uh, with the sledgehammer at the same time that Austin hit Triple H in the head with the barbed wire bat. Or 2x4 actually, it wasn't the bat, but same difference, I guess, is mainly the barbed wire. And then but Triple H falls kind on top of, of balls, yeah. So now, good. Now, I have to ask the question, because you know it's me, and I have to ask this question. Why did Triple H win this match? You know, I didn't know that for many years, and then I read 
an editorial quite a few years ago from ProWrestling.net describing Austin's road to WrestleMania in 2001. And the the basic overarching story was Austin's lost it. Austin can't keep up. He barely won the Royal Rumble. He had to beat the crap out of Kane with the steel chair in order to get him over the rope. He couldn't beat Triple H. And then finally that culminates in, as we'll talk about, when we get to April. Or maybe, I don't, we haven't said, are we doing just a WrestleMania 17 show on its own? Yes, I think I think we should really. It's April. That's the the time to do it. But yeah, as you as you as you rightly say, it, it ends up with obviously spoiler alert: Austin turning to the dark side. And yeah, like to... he can't beat the Rock, so he has to take a McMahon endorsed steel chair and just beat the Rock to holy hell. He doesn't even beat him with the stunner. You know, he just beats the Rock up. Yeah, and I think that's a good reason for why Austin didn't win because it was telling the story of. Okay, he's getting desperate. It's the rattlesnake angle isn't working, and he's getting very desperate to become champion again. Yeah, so I think that explanation makes a lot more sense to me than what I would originally thought. Which my original assumption was Triple H wins because it's Triple H. <laughs> yeah, which there might be some truth rooted in there, but you know, let's let's go with the one that makes storyline sense. Okay, but overall, this match is. Like, if you watch anything from this show, then this is the match to go back and watch, because even if it is, like, making a mockery of basically any other match you're ever going to see, for the 45 minutes you're watching this, you're going to be glued to the television. This was the match that was on, like, my, like, top 20 list of pay-per-view matches before pay-per-view matches became routinely just, like, blow-away wrestling matches. This is a match that always stuck out in my mind because you didn't see shit like this. You didn't see 45-minute matches of guys kicking out of finishers and, you know, beating the holy hell out of each other. And by the way, I really miss that style of just, like, you know, the trading blows. And now they have it to where it's, like, you're trading super kicks and high-impact moves. But that slugfest-type brawling in the main events that we used to see. You don't see it anymore, and I really miss it. So we move on to the actual main event of the night, which was Kurt Angle defending the WWF Championship against The Rock. Um, this Obviously, it didn't hold up to the Austin Triple H match, but this was still a very good match between two guys that had very good chemistry with each other. And The Rock was essentially just all about the punching, just hitting a few like impact moves every now and again, but mainly just brawling with Angle. And Angle would hit his like, array of suplexes, take cut corners when he had the opportunity to. And then, like, through the early going, like, it's a good match. It's, if a little bit, like, I wouldn't say underwhelming, but just isn't isn't hitting the high notes just yet. And then for some reason, The Big Show turns up. Now, The Big Show had won the Hardcore Championship in the opening match of the night, which we'll talk about in a little more detail a little bit later. But he just comes out, he chokeslams the referee, he chokeslams Kurt Angle, and then he chokeslams The Rock, and then he leaves. Rob, please explain this to me, because I couldn't find out why this was. <laughs> well, I want to tell you it's continuity, and he's mad because, first of all, he and The Rock were fighting all the way back from the previous year's No Way Out, and The Rock eliminated him rather quickly from his return at the Royal Rumble. But I also just think it's a case of it's the big show, and we want to establish him as 
a guy who can fight for the world title at any time, even though he won't be doing that at any time soon. The thing, I think the general gist that I got of it was the idea that, uh, like, The Rock and Big Show had been fighting out to become the number one contender for this match, and eventually The Rock overcame it and he would be the challenger for Angle, and I guess Big Show decided wanted to prove that he was the actual man by taking everyone out in the match. But then they didn't do anything with it because Big Show, like, spoiler alert, heading into WrestleMania, Big Show just is fighting for the Hardcore Championship. So, so nothing really became of beyond this point. But after that, like, interlude, the wrestling really kicks up a notch. When you get into all the, like, closing spots, near falls towards the end. Like, Kurt Angle is one of the greatest of all time in terms of near falls. Like, that last, that very last second kick out. I don't know if there's anyone that does it consistently as well as Kurt Angle does. I don't know if anyone's... The Rock is very good at selling. We know The Rock can take a hell of a Stone Cold Stunner, but did anyone take an angle slam like The Rock? Oh, he, he just went up so... Like, miles in the air, he falls down with so much impact. He like, he looks just completely out of it. I mean, he sells excellently for the angle lock, ankle lock as well. Like I love the fact that like Angle's screaming like fucking tap as well as so they had to actually bleep the scream because he's just shouting fucking tap. You know I think The Rock, going back to video games, was the guy that they used for the motion capture at least in theory for the movements of these games because he was the only one that ever sold the angle sound like that. But every video game for quite some time had that exact like over dramatic sell on the angle slam because it's just so fucking good and then you also have the fact that like angle even though he was going to be dropping the title here he gets a um he gets to kick out of the people's elbow which is a, a, a nice moment for him which is so, stupid because it's just a fucking elbow but that's one of those like nobody kicks out of the people's hey hey it's it's wrestling this is one of the and, things that i can kind of allow it's like the word <laughs> Like, like, the worm's cool, so I, I allow the worm to pin people every now and again. Uh, but then you have, so, then you have, like, a bit of a weird finish where the rock hits a rock bottom and he pins Kurt Angle, but Earl Hedner for some reason thinks that Kurt Angle has got his shoulder up. When Kurt Angle actually hasn't got his shoulder up. And so the rock gets pissed at Earl Hebner and, like, gets Angle in another rock bottom immediately afterwards and then. You can see he hits the rock bottom, and then you can see Rock stare right at Earl Hebner. You probably like you can see it from like behind the Rock's face. You can't see what he says, but I assume that he just stared at Earl Hebner and says "count" or "fucking count" or something along those lines. Yeah, like "count, motherfucker" or something. Yeah, and then and then he then then Earl Hebner does hit the three, and the Rock is the new WWF champion. The crowd goes absolutely crazy for this, and yeah, Angle tells you, and you realize. And this is something that they would not do now. This would have been overbooked to high hell with Angles trying to get into the main event of Mania, Hunter trying to get into the main event because he beat Austin. Like, people went nuts because they just knew, all right, it's Austin and Rock. Yeah. That's it. There were no questions asked. Yes, the crowd goes absolutely crazy. Angles crying up the ramp, but he sells it perfectly, just how much this loss means to him. And... Yeah, that was a great way to close the show. But that's not the only things that we'll be discussing from this show because, like, top from bottom, this was a pretty awesome show. One thing that surprised me, it surprised me the first time I watched it, and it surprised me every time I watch it, is Stephanie McMahon versus Trish Stratus. 
these were two women at the time. Obviously, we know down the line, Stephanie Man becomes the most dominant female in all of professional wrestling, and Trish Stratus becomes one of the greatest women's wrestlers of all time. But at this point in time, they're both complete, like virtually untrained, and they have a fantastic match. I thought it was great. I wouldn't be surprised if this is where they said, okay, Trish is going to be somebody we can build a women's division around. This is a this is a fight. Like you would imagine like these two coming in, that people were probably watching at this point in time thinking, Okay, so Stephanie's just gonna come in, tear Trish Stratus's top off, and then they're just gonna roll around the ring for about like five minutes or whatever, and then it's gonna lead to whatever finish they do. But these two actually just like beat the shit out of each other. Like they were throwing each other into the guardrail and beating each other on the announce table, so many, like like beating each other all over the ring, like hitting some decent moves as well, like Trish hits with like a nice running bulldog and things along those lines. Like, barely any botching, if any at all. You can tell these two, like, I don't want to say rehearsed it, but definitely, like, were on the same wavelength. And they just went out knowing, okay, we're not the greatest wrestlers, so we're just going to, like, fight and show people that this is, like, like this is how these matches could be and get you excited. I, I, well, I watch this and feel like, I, I can't remember, I don't say, like, most women's matches nowadays, or most matches in general, I don't know many matches that have this level of intensity that these this match had. Well, a lot of them don't, and I think for Stephanie, this was the chance to shine. You know, she wasn't in an angle with her husband. She wasn't in an angle where it was like, well, you're a McMahon. This is her just saying, okay, this is my thing. This is my story. I'm going to do whatever I can to make it the best I can and say what we will about Stephanie and we can be hard on her, but Stephanie's so good at the actual performance. Seven Man versus Brie Bella was a sleeper hit. Oh, you know, I mean, I'll I just put it right out there. It's not just I'll bemoan Stephanie for just like her role as an actual like executive figure in WWE. As a performer, there's few women that have ever been as good as Stephanie McMahon. There's few people, regardless of gender, that have been as good as a character as Stephanie McMahon. Like, I agree 100%. Like, her, her facial expressions, her actions, she knows what she's doing. She was born to be... Like, there's someone, she wasn't born to be in that ring in terms of wrestling, but in terms of just as a character, she was born to play this role. And, yeah, I absolutely adore the role that she plays in this match. I think Trish holds her own to a very high regard in this match as well. And obviously you do, it's 2001, so you throw in a little bit of, like, antics as well. So Stephanie throws water over Trish. Like, for some reason, there's a picture of water right in the, on the announce table, so I'm just going to chuck that over Trish's top. And then Stephanie starts ripping at her clothes a little bit towards the end. And then we have uh, William Regal come out. And Regal... Is been like kind of instructed by Vince earlier in the night to you know what you have to do, and Regal has no idea what he's supposed to do. Like he, he's Vince's daughter, but it's also Vince's special friend Trish, so he doesn't know who to with. So essentially, uh, to start with, he puts Trish on top of Stephanie, but then puts Stephanie's foot on the ropes, and Regal is selling this hilariously. He's so <laughs> funny. Like I'll I'll never tire of watching William Regal do anything in a in a wrestling ring because he is absolutely hilarious. He, nobody did the commissioner angle better. He's so good. And he really, I think it's that British humor because he sells things and his facials are just the best. 
yeah, it's a it's a very like slapstick comedy thing, but it, it worked perfectly for him. And then he Trish gets annoyed at him, slaps him across the face, so he like says calm down, and then he offers like to essentially kiss Trish on the hand, but then pulls her into a handman's net breaker and puts Stephanie over, and Stephanie gets the win. And then leads on to later in the night where Vince just goes crazy at Regal, and then it will end up with like. Uh, Vince, Stephanie, and Regal all turning on Trish, and Trish would end up turning babyface off the back of it. So it, it was. I, uh, it's a sleeper match that I definitely like recommend watching. I think it's one of. It's definitely one of Stephanie's best matches, but Stephanie kind of is is known for having these sort of good matches and the one opportunity she has. But it's one of Trish's best matches as well, and Trish has quite a collection. Um, I would also say on this show, the Fatal Four Way. The Intercontinental title. Because just say the names real quick. Benoit, Jericho, Guerrero, and X-Pac. Like, it wasn't as good as you would think in today's standards when you say those four names. But by 2001 standards, that was a really fun Intercontinental title match. Oh, yeah. It was a, it was a very good match. I think it's one that... And I don't, I don't want to make it sound like, harsh about it, but... Like, it's something that you watch, and then after a couple of other matches, you've immediately forgotten that it's happened. Yeah, that's like, fair. If, like, you're enjoying it for the time you're watching it, but once it's done, it's kind of out of your mind. Because, let's put it this way, X-Park at this point in time has is getting no reaction whatsoever. And any reaction he is getting is negative. Because, Ten said term X-Park heat. Yeah, I mean, this is, like, at the peak point of it, because they just don't... It's not a case of, like, they want to boo him because they think he's a, like, a heel or a dick or anything along those lines. They just don't want him around. He's overstayed his welcome. Whereas the other three guys are definitely, like, at, at sort of, like, a very good level. And Benoit's great in this match, as Benoit always was in matches. Jericho's very good. Guerrero's, he's good. He's not particularly memorable, but he's, he was kind of just, not in a, a filler role, but just there to kind of show a bit of discontent between him and Benoit, which would lead to the radical splitting up down the line. Which I think is absolutely fair to say of Eddie Guerrero. People, I'm never going to say Eddie Guerrero was bad. He was never bad, of course. But people tend to think, like, he was electric all the time. And the truth is, up until they gave him the Latino Heat gimmick, and he really came into his own around the mid to late 2002 time frame, Eddie Guerrero was just a very good wrestler and nothing oh, else. Oh yeah, he was a great wrestler at this point in time, but his, his character hadn't connected. I mean, the Mama Cita thing had connected for a while in 2000, but at this point in time, he's just a middle card wrestler and he probably would never get any further than that. But yeah, but the Fatal 4 was good and Jericho retains. Uh, you had the hardcore title match at the start. It's just, just typical, like, reasonably fun bullshit hardcore stuff going on so so just to like run through quickly because it's meant to be it's meant to be raven against the big show but as as time moves on it's very clear that these aren't the only two people that are going to be appearing in this match so you have Ho uh, crash holly try and get a pin on uh, raven immediately and then hardcore holly and steve blackman come down and start beating up the big show and raven then Billy Gunn comes down and actually pins Raven to become the hardcore champion. I'm it, a fan of the 24-7 thing. It was, I really it was am. fun. It was exciting. 
It was just a nice little would... thing for a lot of like undercar people to do. Do you think it would work now? Yes. Yeah, me too. I want to see it come I back. mean, it wouldn't necessarily be a hardcore thing, but I think a 24-7 title just on its own would be fun. But it doesn't need to necessarily be hardcore, but it could be like a false cat anywhere stipulation thing where you're not specifically meant to use weapons, but you can just pin someone anywhere at any time. So I know it was Zack Ryder's thing, but if you do like an internet champion and you say, well, the internet is 24-7, it never stops. So then you have that 24-7 rule and you could do like uh, somebody's live on Instagram. Oh, shit. Uh, they just won the the internet title. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah, so Billy Gunn holds the title for about a minute or two and then Raven gets the title back. And then he's pinned by the Big Show after Big Show's managed to take out basically everybody. And, yeah, that's Big Show walks away with the title. New and he champion. has a fantastic WrestleMania match. Maybe the best hardcore title match ever at WrestleMania 17. It's definitely out there, and we'll definitely look forward to talking about that one in April. Uh, you have Jerry Lauder against Stevie Richards. This was very old school. And... Richards got virtually nothing in this match. Like, it was all Jerry Lawler pretty much in control from start to finish. Just a very classic heel babyface thing. So, essentially, the story going into it is right center one cat stop being, like, nude all the time because they're right sensor and they, like, abhor that sort of thing. So, if Cat won, she would take off the trench coat she was wearing where she was supposed to be completely naked underneath. So you know she wasn't going to win because WWE like, doesn't push the boundaries. They never push the boundaries that far. They showed my young saggy tits a year earlier. They could do whatever they want. <laughs> yeah, but they also realized that that cost them a lot of pay-per-view stuff in the UK and other places. So they probably weren't going to like, push the boundaries that far again. But And then you had uh, Steve Richards. If he won, the cat had to join right censor and cover up. So Lawler pretty much controls the entire thing, and then the finish is absolutely stupid. Like, talk about overbooking for WCW. This is the one instance of terrible overbooking for this one. Where, uh, so Ivory tries to get involved to stop Richards getting pinned. Uh, Lawler brings her in, like, slams her down. And then Ivory keeps trying to get out of the way of the ring, but Richards is trying to use the, the title bell and... Lawler keeps knocking him down, so he knocks him down like twice when he attempts to use it, and both times you think, well, surely he's going to finish him at one point like this. And then the cat comes in, runs about two miles an hour into Jerry Lawler with the title belt, collides with him, Jerry Lawler has to go down like he's been shot, Richards pins him for about ten seconds, and gets the victory. Not the best, but not the worst, and I want to throw this out there. Jerry Lawler... Six days ago, wrestled in a steel cage in Memphis, Tennessee. This man is still wrestling and still wrestling at a high level, and I think that's insane. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like le- less good about that, knowing that he's had a heart attack in the last ten years. But you know, if, if, that's if, if he had a heart attack eight, what is it, seven, eight years ago? Yeah, and he's still wrestling. Yeah, is that a good thing? I I don't know. It's it's, Jerry it's, concerning, thing. it's a concerning thing. I'd probably say that sort of thing but if he, if he still thinks he can do it that's totally fine uh the final 
uh, match to talk about is the Tag Team Championship match, which was the Dudleys defending against Edge and Christian and The Undertaker and Kane in a uh, tables match. So it I wasn't an elimination. Just I, like... I don't know why. I just I love the fact that Taker and Kane were interacting with tag teams. And if you look at the tag teams now, like they would never, you know, receive this kind of spotlight. I, 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 I have a very, I don't want to say love hate because it's not, there's not very little love into it, but I'm very ambivalent towards The Undertaker at this point in his career. He's, at this point in time, he thinks that he's, he's the absolute shit and he doesn't sell very much. He doesn't like, I know at this point in time he's facing two tag teams, so he probably feels that he's above this sort of thing, but he's not selling very much. He's not really getting, uh, like involved in too much side of things he thinks that he's kind of obsessed with his motorcycle he's coming down to rolling by limp biscuit to the ring like this is this is a time of the undertaker that i kind of am happy that he's no longer there yeah i was i will say i'm not typically a fan of the american badass i just happen to love the idea of them being in a tag team and doing things with tag team guys when you look at the fact that like the revival would never be put in the ring with the undertaker and kane of that level today that's true but i think the match was a little bit sloppy it wasn't you know it wasn't terrible but it wasn't the greatest i think table matches in general were kind of hard to produce even with the dudleys involved uh it looks like kane and undertaker about to win but then rikishi and haku show up because they were feuding with them so they take the Undertaker and Kane up the ramp and both teams start brawling. And during this time, Christian is put through the table by Dudley's with a 3D, so the Dudley's retain, which will lead into a much better match at WrestleMania 17, but we'll we'll get to that when we get to it. And for the Ticker and Kane side, that would lead to a SmackDown tag team first blood match against the team of Rikishi and Haku. Yeah, and I can only imagine who won that match, but... But at the end of the day, like it was just a an okay tag team title match that surrounded a lot of other matches and decent angles that were going on. I think like this match is obviously the the hardcore title was fun and the fatal four way, but like three standout matches really on this card are like Austin Triple H, Angle Rock, and Stephanie against Trish. Yeah, I don't think that's arguable. Yeah, and I think those those three matches on their own are worth watching, but you might as well watch the entire thing because you won't be, you you certainly won't be disappointed watching the rest of the thing. And I don't, I wonder if we'll ever get back to a time where the pay per views will ever reach this level of excitement. I think we could. I think if the pay per views relied less on. Well, it's Hell in a Cell, so it's a Hell in a Cell match, and you're going to like it because it's a Hell in a Cell match. Yeah. If, if you got more into the, it's no way out, and there will be a steel cage, but it'll be the third fall of this three-stage of hell thing that's been tremendously built, it's it's very possible. It just requires a lot more thinking power. And and this card had a lot of things going for it in terms of, like, two incredibly hot feuds with Trish against Stephanie and Triple H against uh, Austin. And then it had like the big title change at the end, which sent the crowd home happy with the rock beats angle. So 
you don't really get that sort of stuff happening. Like, maybe we'll get that at Fastlane if, like, Kofi beats Brian for the WWE Championship and the crowd goes crazy. Maybe that's... Yeah. A, maybe sometimes you only just need a moment like that to make you think, uh, oh, an average pay-per-view is actually a great pay-per-view. No, I, I agree with that completely because if you look at, you know, something like Evolution, let's say. Evolution was clearly not an A show, but it's a very feel-good show, and it'll always be memorable for that point. Money in the Bank 2011, that was a B pay-per-view, but that whole ending sends people home very happy, and as such is remembered as a great show. Yeah, so I go back to No Way Out 2004 and stuff like that, which is overall not a very memorable show, but the end, the main event is Eddie Guerrero winning the WWE Championship against Brock Lesnar, and then that's just like, it becomes one of my favourite shows of all time. Like, you just need that sort of moment and turn something like that was good into something great. And this match, like, The Rock first angle was just a cherry on top of a show that was, like, top to bottom pretty great overall. And I agree. I think it's very WWF, we talked about a lot of things on the show. We talked about the XFL, which is very, you know, WDF grasping at straws to maintain their popularity. And I think this was peak WWF popularity where you're going to see it culminate in like what many people consider to be the greatest mania of all time. And then it's going to take a turn as we start to settle into this new era. I just want everyone to remember that the show of this quality was produced by a man who wants stuff leaves up his cousin's oh. vagina. Oh. So. <laughs> uh, hashtag crushed leaves. If you're, you know, get that trend in, yeah. use that hashtag. Just oh, tweet at Vincent Man crushed leaves and he'll know what you're talking. And by the way, I hope Vincent Man's dreams now are far less violent than they were in 2001 and beforehand. And I hope women are paid equally now in WWE. <laughs> you can dream, uh, You can uh, dream, as long as it's not violent. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, now we've uh, reached the end of this trip down memory lane. We covered a lot of stuff. This is probably significantly longer than the last one, but there's a lot of stuff to cover. 2001, as, we, as I'd say, is like one of the most interesting years in wrestling history. So I want to cover it in as much detail as possible and hopefully encourage you guys listening to just do some research into yourself. Like definitely watch at least two of these free shows and maybe just have a look into the XFL, see if it was as terrible as everyone claimed it was. Uh, yeah, so any any other like just final thoughts about just going back in February 2001 before we sign off, Rob? I think really fun month. It did didn't really expect to have as much fun as I did, whether it be on the absolute absurd side, like that Playboy interview or the WOW show, or just the great wrestling match that was Triple H and Stone Cold. I didn't have, expect to have as much fun as I did on this journey back into February of 01, and I'm looking forward to March. Well, March will bring its own source of fun. Obviously, we'll go back and look at the reheated tags again for some fun. Uh, the main show that will be covered in that one will be the final WCW pay-per-view, which is uh, WCW Greed. And then also, 
I can't remember off the top of my head. I might have to just like double check quickly. But we'll probably look at because there's no WWE pay per view that takes place in March because at this point in time, they're still like only wanting to put one pay per view between the Royal Rumble and that rather than the two that we have now. But I think we'll watch the final episode of WCW Monday Nitro, which right. takes place on March twenty eighth, two thousand and one, which is the cross which is the cross program between WWE and WCW where Shane purchases the company. So we'll just look into that and see what else happened in the show. I think Ric Flair vs. Sting happens on that show as well. So I'm sure we'll have plenty of fun checking that out. So um, You'll also see, I believe, Elix Skipper and... Well, I want to say Lance Storm, but I feel like that's not right. Versus Rey Mysterio and Billy Kidman for the Cruiserweight Tag Team titles. I believe it was uh, Elix Skipper and Kid Romeo. Kid Romeo, okay. Versus, so, I have to make sure... Uh, and then you have, of course, Booker T winning the fourth of fifth of five uh, WCW World Championships against Scott Steiner in a champion versus champion match. Yeah, so we look forward to watching all that stuff just to just to see what the final Nitro was like and just relive that amazing moment where you get to see Vincent Mann's face on Nitro for the first time. But so it'll probably be a two two show thing then so we might just put some more time into news but this has been a pretty long one so it might be good to have a march one which is a little more time constrained but if you've reached out this far thank you for listening and we'll just take up a little bit more of your time just for a few plugs so you could obviously find out more about this check out more articles on smartcatmoment.com it's just where all our weekly articles or just like random articles kind of cross you can check out all the other videos on youtube that we have or podcasts on stitcher and itunes and all other places that great podcasts are hosted uh you can if you're feeling extra generous and want to reward us for the hours we spent researching uh recording this you can donate to the patreon uh just any money that you can give on that is hugely appreciated and helps keep the lights on here at smart count moment uh, other stuff, you can purchase t-shirts on Redbubble, uh, just follow us on, like, Twitter and Facebook and all the other, like, social media stuff. You can, uh, join the conversation in the Mega Maniacs Facebook group, where we talk about wrestling and non-wrestling things with just like-minded individuals, so get involved, start a conversation, you'll get some interesting responses, I'm sure. Uh, Tony's not here, but so I'll plug the uh, Fanboys Anonymous, so check out all his stuff that he's got going on there, all the best stuff in geek culture. Oscars are coming up, so there'll definitely be plenty of stuff going on in, in uh, relation to that, which I'm sure Rob will get involved in. Rob, have you got any other plugs you want to throw out? Yes, I would just like to say, first of all, if you're going to donate any money to our Patreon, be preferred if you donate $2,001, as inflation has raised the value of them quite a lot. And the more money, the better. As far as myself, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at DudeFelice. You can check out all the stuff that myself and Tony have going on at eWrestling News. For Tony, yes, the Oscars are coming up. No, we will not be doing a post-show podcast. Tony confirmed that to me a few nights ago. But you can always check out The Week in Geek and all that good stuff there. The Triple Threat will be coming up within the coming days. It'll be a grab bag, so that'll be a lot of fun. And that's it for me. That's it for Callum. Unless hey. you have anything. 
I didn't get oh, my yeah. own plugs yet. Oh wait, no, <laughs> you didn't plug yourself. No, I'm, plug, I'm too busy plugging the brand, Rob. I can't. Like, oh jeez. Plug well, everything go, at once. Go plug yourself with the crush leaves. Let's go. Uh, I don't want to. I, I feel dirty now. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you can you can follow me on Twitter at Wigmeister14. Let it, let us know how you enjoyed this show. Like, if you have any thoughts from the previous one, what you want to see from the March one, if you've got any thoughts about that, any thoughts about what you want to include on this show, anything that was good, anything that was bad, any feedback you have whatsoever is greatly appreciated. And you can leave them, either send them to me on Twitter or leave them in the comments below or leave a comment on the Smart Camo website, wherever floats your boat. And I guess that's it then. So thank you very much for listening, guys. This has been another Smart Camo moment, and we are being counted out. Ah!